Get ready for a surprise. Dead or alive, you are coming with me. Everyone fights, no one quits. If you don't do your job, I'll shoot you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us we have a, a, a great guest, um, uh, an old, old friend of mine. Uh, me, and, uh, me and him, we wrote a, a column on Chud.com together on Tales from the Crypt, in which we uh, sort of reviewed a whole bunch of uh, Tales from the Crypt episodes. Uh, that was a whole lot of fun to do. Uh, John Bernard. Welcome, John. Hi. Hi, yeah. That's me, John Bernard. Yeah. Also, um, probably well, one of the few guests we've had that has listened to the show, which will be nice. Is that <laughs> Really? Wow. Okay. I, th- I don't. Th- I think so, right? Um, no, I, I think the majority of our guests at least are familiar with the show. I don't know if they've actively downloaded every episode, but um, yeah, I think... I think our guests are fans overall. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. Sometimes you're just happy for them to be there. Oh yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> you're happy they're gonna waste their waste two plus hours of their time with you. Oh indeed. So um you know, today's episode is on Paul Verhoeven. Yes. And I've primarily been only familiar with him. Uh, when he came to the States and made some of my favorite action movies, actually. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting since I had not... I was not at all familiar with his earlier work. Yeah, that's, that's I think, why... Uh, I think that's why I, I chose him. Uh, I think I... Do you remember who chose him, Jim? No. I feel like I did. Well, the part of it is because John Bernard... Uh, you know, or John requested... Paul Verhoeven. John's a huge fan of Paul Verhoeven, as I, as, if if I'm correct. Well, who isn't to some right. extent? Um, I mean, I hadn't seen a whole lot of the older Dutch films myself either until uh, last couple of weeks. I'm mostly a, b- a big fan of his of his huge American films. The you know I think mm-hmm. he made six, six or seven, I think. Yeah, and pretty much loved all of those with you know with a couple exceptions and. Watched them many, many times. So uh, that's where that came from. So I was just as interested to see all the old stuff. Yeah, I was a little more familiar with his old stuff um, uh, just on the basis of uh, – it was featured somewhat prominently in the documentary uh, Z Channel hmm. um, where uh, apparently Jerry Harvey who ran the – who programmed the Z Channel, he was the – he was a big supporter of Paul Verhoeven's early work, and so they showed clips from like Turkish Delight and uh, Soldier of Orange on that, and that always really piqued my interest. And even though I had never, uh, I had not seen those movies until the past couple weeks, um, I definitely the just the clips I had seen had always informed how I looked at movies like RoboCop and Total Recall and Showgirls and stuff like that. Yeah, and I I read that Verhoeven has a uh, love hate relationship with Joe Esterhaus, and I I can kind of have a love hate relationship with Verhoeven's films. Some I love, some I think are 
pure trash, but I like that he explores moral degradation, um, including in a lot of his earlier work, and that kind of stuff really fascinates me. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into some of his collaborations with Esther House. Because uh, that's an interesting screenwriter. Never read his em- memoir or anything, but uh, kind of infamous, especially when he was uh, everywhere. I, uh, I I can only imagine anyone would have a love-hate relationship with a man who has made you so many millions of dollars and yet <laughs> also <laughs> made you dire- direct some of the worst scripts of your career. Yeah, very true. <laughs> I read pieces of that Esther House book, hmm. sort of out of context, and he comes across as a really, really sleazy guy. Actually, yeah, Doesn't yeah, he surprised me. It's uh, it's uh, I, I think I think you can know a lot about Esther House just by the script from Basic Instinct. I think that <laughs> I think that will tell you most of what you need to know about Joe Esther House. Have you heard of his most recent memoir about trying to write a a, a film about? Uh, about the Maccabees with Mel Gibson. Yes, I, I, I uh, um, Nathan Rabin covered that back That's in the, the article I read. Yeah, yeah, it was on the AV Club. That was really interesting because uh, the only person I would be more interested to see Esther House collaborate with than Verhoeven would be Mel Gibson. <laughs> At least as far as like politically incorrect, in-your-face <laughs> filmmakers go, those are those are three. Uh, those three are pretty high up there. I think they were leaving voicemails back and forth full of hate and screaming. So I I think that's also when Esther House accused Mel Gibson of uh, being anti-Semitic, too. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, Esther House, he'll say anything. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's hard to believe. Um, But, yeah, uh, do we have any uh, business to take care of, Jim? Not really. I did something crazy... um, during a rather productive week, including uh, putting together a trailer for a little self-indulgent documentary on me (laughs) that I'm putting out on my birthday. So I put that together, put it on Vimeo, just for fun. It's Mm -hmm. basically like cutting pieces of uh, old home movies together and kind of creating a mock-up of, you know, your behind the you know behind the scenes are I mean uh, an e true Hollywood story and just kind of having fun with that uh, and then I uh, decided to surprise everybody in the same way that you did with your um, radio directors club bonus episode which I enjoyed immensely um, I wanted to do my own take on that by covering some of the uh, best movie scores and soundtracks from 2013. So that's a, a bonus episode that you can check out, in which it does have a uh, regular FM radio format at times. But I I had fun doing it. And then, of course, there's a crazy self-indulgent eight-minute long tribute to uh, to good old Tom Sharpling, which you did as well. I just had I had to have my own personal stamp on that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's quite fun. I hope people dig it. And if they don't, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're very confident, Jim. I know. (laughs) I'm more confident to talk about the What We Watch segment. This one is for all you Peter Satara fans. Yeah. 
right, so let's do that. Mm-hmm. Well, John, uh, you've you've heard the podcast. You know we like to start with the guest. Um, well, what have you seen recently? Yeah, I've uh, well, I've been watching basically the movies you've been covering the last couple weeks. You know, end of the year stuff. Yeah, seen all the the movies making all the top ten lists. So, you know, I probably don't want to go over those much again. Uh, I did see Burke and Hare recently, uh, the John Landis film. Uh, have you heard of this? It uh, stars yeah, Simon Pegg and um, uh, Andy Serkis. And it's got a whole ton of people like that in it. It's, uh, uh, Tim Curry has a big role. Uh, Tom Wilkinson has a big role. Um, Christopher Lee's in it. It's a really surprisingly good cast for a movie that got no release at all. No publicity at all. And I think it's Landis' first film in like at least 10 years. Hmm. Uh, and it was kind of it was kind of like a, a high profile uh, shedding away of the film, I, if I recall. It was well, sort of it makes of, sense. It makes it was, sense. It's not a very good movie. It's yeah. Uh, it's not at all what you want with that cast or John Landis. It's all very. Uh, it's pitched really broadly. Like it, it's a story about um, grave robbers who um, run out of graves to rob, so they just start murdering people for the corpses, <laughs> and. They decide to make a – it's sort of a, like a really dumb comedy out of it, hmm. like sort of later day Mel Brooks kind of vibe. And, you know, John Landis is one of the funniest directors or has directed some of the funniest movies ever made. And uh, it's kind of kind of puzzling how this mix, mix, just mixed them – missed the mark so much. It's uh, It's really broad, really dumb. Everyone – like a lot of people getting – Shit sprayed on him, kind of jokes, you know. Mm. Really leans into the Scottish accents. Uh, it's Andy Circus is, I guess, all right in it. Everyone else is is kind of, kind of actively bad, and that, that's a bummer to see Simon Pegg acting. Yeah. So I can't really recommend that. But um, I also have been watching Hannibal, the television show. I've heard a lot about that show. I need to catch up with that show. I saw the pilot and really liked it. Um, but, it's uh, extraordinary. Yeah. It's really good. Like, uh, it's so much smarter than you think it's going to be. And I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Sons of Lambs. The rest of the series, not much. I really don't like procedurals. Really don't like NCIS, CSI, catch the serial killer kind of shows on TV. And it, it's, it just transcends that. It's really strong writing. It's all about the psychological states of the characters, and, and in the cinematography and the effects are just beautiful. It's, it's yeah. the best-looking show on TV right now. I, I can't recommend that enough. It's really surprising for an NBC like serial killer show, too. And that guy who plays Hannibal, who is in The, the Hulk, oh, yeah. man, I, that guy is way up there for me in terms of actors that I'm excited to see in anything. I think he's kicking Anthony Hopkins' ass, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think he's just so much better at this role. Yeah, less hammy. Well, yeah, but even when it was good, Anthony Hopkins, it's, um, the, the character's, like, scary again. He's not funny at all. The show is not funny in the least. And, uh, and, well, it's not just him, though. The writers have a very strong take on what they wanted to do. They, they made all the right choices on this. It, it's, it's well worth your time. So yeah, that is so they don't so they're not at all they're actively trying to avoid comparisons to Anthony Hopkins like it's a very different kind of take on the character. Well, it is a very different take on Hannibal, but it's interesting they're really they're referencing 
at least Silence of the Lambs, a lot more than I would have expected. They're kind of, it takes place in a different time frame than Silence of the Lambs. Like Hannibal is, is not in jail. He's a practicing um, psychiatrist. And, uh, but they're still finding ways to sort of create the same visual, uh, visual angles or, um, or shots. Like uh, a lot of it takes place in the Baltimore institution that he's in, that he starts Silence of the Lambs in. And they have a lot of the same, um, like the hallway and all that stuff. Uh, a lot of the same characters show up um, and do slightly different versions of what they did in the movies. It, it shouldn't work, but it does somehow. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't imagine they'd be able to get away with Migs being the same as in Silence of the Lambs <laughs> on uh, network television. Um, but so, like, you, when you say it's a, the cinematography is beautiful, like, is it is it actually doing the sort of operatic Jonathan Demi? kind of style that he did in Silence of the Lambs with that sort of, you know, kind of crazy camera work and stuff like that? I mean, as much as they can get away with, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say it looks specifically like Silence of the Lambs. It has its own visual palette, for sure. Oh, boy, what what would I compare it to? It looks better than in most TV shows, that's for sure. Um, hmm. Hmm. It doesn't look like Breaking Bad exactly, but the way that that show was shot. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, uh, they have setups that you would never imagine on the schedule that they have. Uh, <laughs> special effects that don't don't look terrible. Like they have a uh, uh, the main character, the, uh, the the Will Graham character, has visions of a of a stag covered in raven's feathers, and it, it's actually kind of a a creepy image that is effective, even though it's obviously CGI on a TV schedule. TV budget, but uh, but it works because it's, it's it's well composed. It's it's it looks good. That's really interesting. <laughs> I would never expect a, a CGI uh, creature uh, to be effectively creepy mm-hmm. on a it TV show. Be. No, it, it's a it's a deer covered in feathers. It, it should look right. terrible. <laughs> and when uh, if you have watched any shows like The Following or uh, or other serial killer shows on network it's um it's a completely different beast it's uh i I mean now that breaking bad's over i could actually kind of see this slotting into the the show i'm excited about the second season starting the end of february and uh i'm definitely going to be watching that so can you tell me just what is the is it a procedural show is there is it more of a serialized show like what is the ongoing story is it will graham trying to catch hannibal or is it hannibal and Will Graham catching other criminals, or what's what is the uh, how does the show kind of operate? Well, it's structured, I guess, like a procedural, like uh, like Lawrence Fishburne plays Jack Crawford, and um, and Hugh Dancy is uh, the Will Graham character, and they're they're just catching serial killers. And Hugh Dancy has mental issues, so he has a therapist that he talks to, and that's Hannibal Lecter, and he sort of insinuates himself into the cases hmm. and into into Hugh Dancy's brain, basically. It's, uh, it's really concerned with the psychological state of its characters. Like the Will Graham character, uh, the way that Ed Norton or um, ah, the guy from Manhunter. William uh, Peterson. William Peterson. He's way more messed up than them. Like he's barely functional. He's, yeah. uh, uh, I believe that's how it was more written in Red Dragon. Uh, was that he was a lot like, I mean, obviously as a novel, they have more access to the character's inner life, but it was that he thought like a serial killer and that's why he was good at catching them. 
And there's a little bit of that in Manhunter, but I think there was more of that in the book. And that stuff's really well handled in the show. Even though it is kind of a silly TV conceit that he can kind of see through the eyes of the killer. But it, it they're pulling it off. Um, that's a really interesting way they're shooting those, too. Like, uh, you see the crimes um, take place, but instead of having the killer there, you have the, uh, the Will Graham character acting as the killer in the flashbacks. Interesting. Yeah. In, yeah. Because he's able to read them that way. Like, like, uh, like in the beginning of Red Dragon, the, um, in the Leeds house or whatever it is. Is this, uh, is, is this on Netflix or? It really should be. Uh, I think they're kind of <laughs> missing the boat with that because it's not well rated. Uh, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's not, and it's, it might not get renewed if it doesn't kind of get its act together this year. But I think if it was on Netflix, people would find it and they would, they would respond to it because it's really good. I mean, I've definitely, I've definitely heard a lot about it, and it's just one of those things where it's I don't have, I don't get network TV. So, uh, is it on Hulu? I'm not sure about the Blu-ray. Yeah, I, I should, I should see if it's. And on it's Hulu a good enough like show; that, it's yeah. worth watching on Blu-ray. Yeah, or a good enough looking show. Oh yeah, yeah. I've just seen the pilot, but I'm eager to check more episodes out. Um, I think it's funny you bring this show up too, in in light of. Uh, episode three of the latest season of community because they sort of uh satirize procedurals um and david fincher movies in a really really funny way zodiac Uh, right yeah yeah pretty much pretty much all zodiac i mean there's there's hints of seven in there um the music cue when they're doing research it's really funny uh but yeah, I mean, we're sort of inundated with a lot of these shows, like The Killing and The Following, and uh, you know the the darker side of uh, you know the dark psychology of being um, in law enforcement in any context. And yet, I was kind of blown away, especially when you talk about great cinematography um, with HBO's True Detective. I got to catch up with that. Holy crap! That is, it's one of the most beautiful looking shows. It's so elevated to make you think you're watching a movie, and obviously when you have Matthew McConaughey giving the performance of his career, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he's basically playing like Nietzsche as a cop. He's just, you know, it's a very nihilistic, very dark. It, it's It's got a Cormac McCarthy uh, quality to the writing that I really respond to, and, um, you know, it's it's again, it's it's the setup is very similar to bunch of shows that are on tv right now where it's just like let's introduce this murder and you know each episode there's some kind of cliffhanger or something and it works it works in every way and i'm very excited about this because i think what they're doing is eight episodes with just um woody harrelson and matthew mcconaughey and then they take some time off and then they're going to come back with two completely different actors and still maintain the show so it, is, are they doing like an American Horror Story sort of thing, where each season is its own self-contained I, thing? I would think so. I don't. I mean, That's I don't how imagine. I heard it described. Yeah. I really i I just looked this up on i on IMDb, and I think it, would, it, it appears to be kind of a similar setup, though clearly a very different show from Eastbound and Down, where it's one <laughs> one writer for every episode. Um, it's the same writer for every episode. It's the same director for every episode. Um, Kerry Fukunaga, who uh, he directed Sinombre, he directed Jane Eyre, that yeah. uh, that really good Jane Eyre uh, adaptation from uh, 2011. Like, and I like I love the 
I love the idea of smaller <laughs> to, to use sort of a, a, a whiskey term to smaller batch kind of television, which yeah, is just too. sort of you know handcrafted. I mean, you know, Eastbound Down is not one of my favorite shows, but I, everything about that that is great is because it has a singular vision behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, not every show can work that way. No one would, no one, no like two people would be able to, be able to make The Wire. Uh, like that, a show like that, you need a writing staff, you need a lot of research, you know, like that has to be a huge collaborative effort. But like, I love that, uh, sort of mini series, um, are coming back, but they aren't, they are, I guess they aren't pitched the same way as mini series used to be a pitch, which is here's the event. Here's yeah. what everyone at work's going to be talking about. So here's what you got to see edit, and they'll be, and that kind of dictated what kind of content a miniseries would have, which would be it'd be an adaptation of a classic novel or, um, you know, it would, it would be some kind of epic sci-fi thing or like V or stuff Born like birds, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gulliver's travels starring Ted Danson, you know, the, yeah. the, the really classic <laughs> miniseries. I mean, you know, there were some other good small ones in there like roots and stuff, but we're mostly talking about foreign birds <laughs> And Gulliver's Travels. Hey, did you ever catch up with uh, Top of the Lake by any chance yet? I never. I've never watched any of it. Oh God, that's like Jane Campion's. <laughs> like that's one of the best things she's ever done. Well, I should. Ch- I should check it out. But if you recall, I'm not a huge fan of Jane Campion. I know, but that's. I. I think you're gonna completely turn around when you see this. It's. It's Twin Peaks esque. I mean, it's very melancholy. It doesn't have the surrealness of it but it's a beautiful show it's got a great murder mystery and uh elizabeth moss is phenomenal in it so i i don't know i just top of the lake and true detective sort of have similar uh dreadful tones to them but they make it so compelling and not like exhausting that's what i think is it's it's one of the best experiences i've had watching a show recently um with true detective it just makes me like really eager in the same way i was with breaking bad for next week yeah, yeah. So I, I, sh- I should watch it. I like Elizabeth Moss a lot. Yeah. I should give it. That is on Netflix, right? Yes, it is. All right. And it's like a BBC thing, so it's probably only like five episodes or something like that. I think it's six or seven yeah. at the most. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'll check it out. You should. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I think it's good to follow up on the last episode in regards to our top ten list, Patrick. Oh, yeah. I heard that yours changed. There were some changes. That's right. You saw that David Bowie documentary. Yep. Really, obviously, I walked in knowing that I was probably going to love her. Yeah, and although I agree, there's maybe another interesting movie to be made from this concept. I think I just celebrate that wide-eyed romanticism a lot, (laughs) maybe to a fault sometimes. Do you see? Do you see that? That do you see her as wide-eyed romantic? Um, at at times, yeah, yeah. I mean. It, 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 it's, it is Eternal Sunshine-esque in that it sort of has those moments where you're like, aw, and then, you know, you're really uh, distraught towards the end, too, because of what, you know, the scene with him on the stairs just sitting there and realizing that his relationship's about to fall apart is pretty devastating. Um, but I just, I just like that he d- chose to tell a really simple love story that's relatable and it's it's centered around something that i picked up on that i kind of wrote about which i think is active listening like 
just because maybe I'm associating my own like long distance relationship experiences with, you know, this idea of like, oh, I can't actually see this person or be in the same room with them, but I'll, I can just listen to them. Uh, and I, I, I really connected with that quality of the movie, even though that's not its central thesis, I realize. Um, but I just also like that he didn't go out of his way to preach, you know, about technology or question about what was taking place in the world. It just sort of happens organically, kind of like technology does. <laughs> just that appears. That I mean, that is that is a, that is something worth praising. That um, it, the same way I do believe a more a better and more interesting movie could be made from this presence. Uh, a more tiresome and annoying movie could also have easily been made from this presence. So mm-hmm. I will I will definitely concede that I I was very happy that it wasn't um, some sort of uh, like. Uh, I'm glad it aired on the side of making Scarlett Johansson so human as to make the fact that she's not a human being irrelevant (laughs) uh, as opposed to airing on the side of making her so robotic that you're supposed to be disgusted and be like, oh, man, we're so disconnected from each other because technology – like it's clearly a much more complicated issue than that and it could have – but that's also never the kind of movie I expected Spike Jones to make in the first place. (laughs) Like I I never would have ever expected him to be – Mr. Anti-Technology, so. I mean, I do like, you know, some people bringing up just, uh, I think even Mike D'Angelo wrote in one of his reviews, like, what would it have been like if Charlie Kaufman had this concept and how much uh, darker it could have been. Um, but I don't know. Like, I I like that he went for a more of emotional experience than an intellectual one. But I think even afterwards, uh, some questions popped into my head about personal connections and how they develop and my own relationship with my phone, you know? Um, but I, 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 I like that it just presents the story, let it, lets it unfold and doesn't necessarily like aspire for a whole lot more than just something simple. Um, and again, it's like, there's moments where the cinematography is really reminiscent of, um, Lost in Translation and a Terrence Malick movie too, just because like his his representations of memory too, like the way they cut together, um, I really like that a lot. Uh, and you know, just the fact that it, you know, the final shot is really really something to me. And I know a lot of people might just go, eh, that's kind of sappy and obvious or something, but I think I, that's a, I, to me it was very personal f- film for him, and I understood why by the end. Can I actually? I, I forget what the final shot was. It's um, him and uh, Amy Adams sitting on the roof together. Oh right, right. And she yes. just puts his her head on his shoulder as they look out, and I just I don't know that that just really got to me because it's not I, like again preaching about like oh my god we must hang out more often we you know we have to connect on a more human level it's just something simple that is kind of understated and I really identified with it um, but I mentioned this um i think on the film jive podcast which the episode hasn't aired yet but um me and ryan mcneil of the matinee cast review her for about like an hour so probably can check that out too when it's uploaded really excited to hear that um but i mentioned on the podcast that like my top five they could all be number one at this point because like i had such a incredible response to her Upstream Color and Inside Lewin Davis that any other year, any of those movies could be number one. Like Do you, I just can really, I ask, can I, uh, can I ask you real quick about Inside Lewin Davis? Yeah. 
because um, I I like Inside Lewin Davis the same way I like pretty much every Coen Brothers movie, but it did not feel particularly special to me, other than the fact that it was you know it sort of is exists in a milieu that I'm that obviously both me and you are very interested in and have a connection to um, as far as a folk music scene, which is how mm-hmm. we met. Um, but like, what? What what about inside Lewin Davis to you push it over, or is it just the fact that it's just like it's Coen Brothers movie and Coen Brothers are so good that they're like is it, it to you one of the better Coen Brothers movies? I think so. Um, it's definitely my. I, it's tough because like I would definitely say it's one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. I don't know if it's their best or even in their like top five all time Coen Brothers movies, but for me, like it just captured this tendency to be so self-centered that you end up having no connections and you end up feeling lost. Um, and it dealt with grief without like necessarily, you know, hitting you over the head about what had happened to his friend or his, uh, collaborator. And, uh, it's tough. Cause like, I want to talk about something that I, I wanted to question, but then again, if people haven't seen the movie yet, it's hard. Yeah. To spoil. That's fair. That's fair. You don't want to spoil it. But um, I, (laughs) like, I think it was during the road trip, too, that made me go, this could, this, this is probably their darkest or their most melancholy movie, because even with John Goodman's character, who's really fucking funny, uh, it gets really intense. And I was, I, I guess I was expecting more humor, because it's a Coen Brothers movie. Like, I think... Even a serious man is funnier than this movie, um, and I kind of like that it kept its tone fairly consistent throughout. And the the gray cinematography and just it's kind of a crazy movie to see in, in the middle of winter, especially when it's foggy. You like walk out of the theater and you feel like you're still in that world. Um, but I don't know. I it's it, it sort of. It's a really interesting movie that I can't wait to watch again because I did have a really strong response to it. And I think it's, again, one of those movies where you can sort of look at scene by scene. Does it all connect together effortlessly? Is it more fragmented? Um, I I don't think so. I mean, mean, it is more episodic, but that's just the structure it shows. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I kind of like that about it. Yeah. you know, I like that this is a character who's, you know, really, like, trying desperately to, uh, you know, he, he doesn't want to detach, but it's almost becoming more naturally to them, to him at some points, you know, and, like, he tries to communicate to his father through a song, and that scene really, like, subverted my expectations by the end. Oh, and another thing, like, another thing that surprised me, too, is, like, okay... He sees the sign for Akron, Ohio, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Here he goes on another episode, and the Coens decide to subvert that expectation. I think it was a movie that just kind of constantly surprised me, um, and I was really drawn in to the lead character despite him being such an asshole. <laughs> uh, uh, John, have you seen either of these films? Yeah, I saw both of them. Uh, liked them both very much. I, uh, I think I connected more with her. I, I definitely got more into that. Uh, Lewin Davis was... Um, I, I had a hard time getting getting into his mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there's sort of a base level of genius that the Coen brothers don't really drop below. So it's a really good movie, you know, every, every individual element of it is really strong. And, um, I, I love the ending. I thought the ending was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, especially with the, well, if we're not giving away, but the, the guy who he leaves on, uh, the, the performance that he walks out right as yeah. it's starting. Mm-hmm. So, that summed up the whole film for me. Oh, like he just missed being, yeah, yeah like that's great. Um, her though, her, I felt, I got into that one. I, I like that very much. Uh, I was worried about watching it. I thought it was going to be depressing. I thought it was going to be, um, you know, just like loneliness, grotesque horror show, you know, with the concept and, and the mustache that he's wearing. I thought this is going to be <laughs> just <laughs> just depressing Todd Solon's kind of just, I'm going to be hurt by this movie. And, and it wasn't at all. It was very universal. It was very, like, it felt warm and it felt like, it completely embraced all of its characters and um, understood things that were true of everybody. I, I love that movie. Yeah, I, I think I think for me for Inside Lewin Davis, um, it is. I mean, I mean, John, you really know that like every individual element element of that movie is so good um, that if it the only thing that keeps me from really just being blown away by it is that it's also just familiar because it's the it's the Coen Brothers and. They, it's playing a very similar game to uh, films like A Serious Man or uh, Barton Fink, which um, are my favorites. <laughs> and I think, and I think, I think it's better than A Serious Man because I think it, it, I think it takes itself a little more seriously than A Serious Man. <laughs> and I think it, I, I think it, um, I, I think it maybe it has a little more respect for the story it's telling. A Serious Man always feels like almost kind of a lark to me, but just I think because that's why that, I like Serious Man more. I think yeah. that's why. I responded more to that. It's uh, it, it is it's more of a comedy. I guess that's that's what it comes down to. I I mean, and you know, obviously it's bullshit to rank them or whatever, but it can <laughs> be helpful to compare them at least in terms of what makes one, you know, what makes me respond to one more than the other. But like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like I feel like Barton Fink uh, is the best example of this because it is it completely plays to the Coen brothers strengths, which is sort of that surrealism and stuff. Um, the fact that inside Lewin Davis, uh, isn't more of a comedy. Like it makes it more, it makes it interesting to watch, but it also means that it relies entirely on the characterizations, uh, which can be kind of a uh, light in a, in Coen brothers movies. Um, other than Lewin Davis, most of the, like, especially, you know, uh, Justin Timberlake's character. I thought Carrie Mulligan's character was actually really poorly written. I think she she's a fine actress, but like it was really unfortunate that all she was called to do was to just be an asshole mm-hmm. entire movie. Like I like it, she really had no nuance to her character. She just was this weird cartoon in a movie that didn't feel like it should have cartoons like that. No, well, she was like, just there to spout bile. Right. She 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 felt like more of a character from a serious man than she did from Inside Lewin Davis, but. It is again. It is just. Uh, it's very. It's a very familiar film to me, um, as far as just it being a Coen Brothers movie, um, which is you know the only. I, I think especially this year. Um, I mean, especially last year, two thousand thirteen. Like the movies, I look at the movies. All the movies in my top five. They're all movies that completely caught me off guard and. And hadn't you know? I really start. I really uh, in 2013. I really cherished sort of the experience of being surprised and being um, challenged and and sort of 
you know, that sort of thing, you know, the, the kind of effect that you have watching Upstream Color or uh, Leviathan or Barbarian Sound Studio and those very challenging, strange kind of movies, computer chess, you know. Whereas uh, I think, I mean, like I said, her and Inside Lewin Davis, um, they're, they're in my, you know, top, uh, they're like, you're, you know, they're in my top 25 movies. They're really good movies. They're just very familiar movies, um, which is why I don't think I go, uh, I'm not going as nuts over them. I think, uh, as some other films that I go nuts over. And that makes complete sense. I, I wouldn't argue that point. And plus, it also depends on, you know, the emotional response. And I had really strong ones to both of these movies, um, despite n- knowing deep down that Upstream Color is probably the most original movie of the year. A- and yet, I still get that satisfactory emotional experience from that movie as well. Um, like... I'll never forget, you know, how impactful seeing Upstream Color for the second time was. Because, like, everything starts to click. Like, the synapses are firing and you kind of go, oh, this is actually a really simple movie about one simple theme that I actually understand. Yeah. Uh, And I understand people not clicking with it either. Oh, certainly. I mean, like I said, it's a very (laughs) challenging movie. And if you don't – and if you don't just enjoy the experience of watching it the first time – I don't think there's much hope that you're going to want to watch it a second time. And I don't think you're likely to really understand it uh, on just even a narrative level the first time. But I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to I, – I, I am conf- – I'm not confused so much as surprised that her is so, like, so lauded and so – like, people get so excited about her. Um, if only because it – again, it's just so familiar and that kind of – uh, you know, outcry of support and and affection for movies usually comes from again uh, movies that surprise people. Whereas, you know, again, like I, I almost feel the same way about Eternal Sunshine. Where like Eternal Sunshine is a very elaborate metaphor. It creates this whole new science and this whole new device. And what it and what it does, what the narrative actually does, is not any different than Annie Hall. It just it just does it in a wildly different context, mm-hmm. but it, but it doesn't use that context to it like it has it's a whole lot of legwork to get to a point that a simpler movie could also get to, and I feel that way about her. Like I feel if this was a movie about him meeting someone that wasn't his phone, <laughs> like that wasn't in his phone, but it had basically the same script and it had the same performances. It had Scarlet like Scarlet. I mean, what makes her such a good movie are the performances. I think Scarlett Johansson and and Joaquin Phoenix are so good in it. I think I, that would just be you know if it didn't have the sci-fi elements to it, if it didn't have the sort of um, you know the uh, the whole oh he writes people's notes like love notes to each other like that it just it feels like a lot of it feels kind of clever clever as opposed to useful <laughs> to the story um, like a lot especially the future stuff and and you know the video games he plays and stuff like that and the and Amy Adams weird documentary she's making and it feels like clever ideas uh, that don't necessarily add to the emotional content of the film um, or they did, at least they didn't for me um, it, it, it's a little precious at times there's yeah. stuff in there uh, it, there's a little bit of Wes Anderson kind of quality I, I was picking up on in the film and it didn't necessarily fit as well with the movie, what they were trying to tell with that story. But uh, I didn't care. I just it, it overwhelmed me with with just positive energy, I guess. Certainly, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, uh, there is something to say about doing a universally told story well. <laughs> like, the ju- <laughs> there is something to say about just uh, telling a love story that's really, 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 really good. But it's interesting, though. I mean, your reaction is totally understandable. And, you know, I understand, like, there are people turned off by that kind of preciousness, you know. Um, and you, you sort of had a similar take on... Uh, take this waltz in terms of it being such a familiar story. Well, um, take this take this waltz. It was I felt the problem with take this waltz for me was it was a very familiar story. It wasn't necessarily so much better done than other ways I had seen it, and it felt way more on the nose. Whereas her, I mean, if if you wanted if you want to derive a metaphor out of her, it's it's about it, the literal evolution of Scarlett Johansson's character is a heightening. Of, of just the way that people grow and change and grow apart. Like mm-hmm. it's, and that's. I mean, it's not the so in that way. It's not the exact same story as if she was a human being, but it is super similar. So, whereas I think take this waltz, um, there there's just a lot of imagery and stuff that's really heavy handed, and um, but it doesn't fit the tone of the movie, which is not bigger than life and operatic. Like yeah. I. Like when, like when Joaquin Phoenix is sort of sitting in public, and there's that big ad behind him of the eagle swooping down, you know, oh, yeah. like like that moment, uh, like that fits in this movie because that's sort of the story they chose to tol- tell was a was a more heightened, broad kind of a story, like story at least. Or broad is not the wrong term because it's a very specific story. It's more, it's a heightened. Um, sort of uh, distancing kind of a story, Dis- distancing way. He, it's, he's in an, a world that the audience is not necessarily familiar with. He's in, you know, he has a job that the audience is not necessarily familiar with. So it it sort of pulls you back a little bit. And so that kind of imagery works. Whereas like the, 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 the uh, Sarah Silverman's character sort of framed by a car wreck. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like that to me was just uh, that that kind of stuff just felt like too heavy handed for the movie they're trying to make. Uh, That's probably because I just was so invested that maybe my brain decided to turn that tune that stuff out. But I think you know I understand people's responses because like I you know I read like oh maybe uh, everybody should see uh, Lars and the real girl instead of her. It's completely different in terms of how it's trying to tell its story. Um, I mean, you can even make comparisons to something like 500 Days of Summer where uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character in that movie works for a Hallmark card company and he's able to, you know, articulate all his feelings and thoughts to complete strangers who are going to read these cards. But I think what Spike Jones decides to do is, you know, try to conv- to create this world where he can deal with his own shit that he's been through, through the his own divorce and he most likely had a relationship that probably reflected what Samantha and Theodore go through. Um, it felt like a really personal movie and that, you know, that especially the scene with him um, and Rooney Mara having uh, lunch together, getting ready to sign the divorce papers. That, that was really like familiar to me and <laughs> just like that awkwardness after you break up with somebody and then you try to tell them uh, like, yeah, I met this other person, you know, and it, it left me uneasy, but then it also really spoke to me about how we connect and how it's changed. And, you know, just those moments of him walking around and, you know, talking to the 
person that he's in love with, but not actually being there with them is something I completely uh, understood. Um, and, it, you know, the kind of correlation I brought up between Inside Lou and Davis and her was they have two very interesting moments that stood out to me uh, involving characters looking outside of a, uh, a train window and seeing a reflection of sorts. Um, Inside Lou and Davis is, has a cat, but <laughs> I just I love that moment. Where the cat's looking outside the subway window. Cute. It's very yeah. cute. It's very cute. <laughs> um, yeah, my uh, my top twenty, my top ten list of 2013 changed as well. Ooh, really? Um, because I uh, my local theater had a had a selection of Sunday of short films from Sundance. Um, uh, you know, so the music box it had a program where it played uh, seven short films that played at Sundance. 2013, which is to say January 2013, um, as sort of a you know, the Sundance has been sort of doing in the past couple of years a lot more sort of stuff with local art theaters trying to um, you know uh, tie their festival into a more national thing than just being in Park City. Um, me and you, Jim, we saw Jacko's Boating as part of that uh, sort of program. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which. Jack goes boating. If you if you want to see a story of two, okay, okay. Can I say real quick one other thing? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, here's something. Joaquin Phoenix's performance in her is so good that this wasn't nearly as big of a problem as it kind of felt like. <laughs> as like when I think about it in retrospect, I'm like, wow, I'm surprised that didn't bother me. I'm really tired of very shy, precious male characters in indie romantic comedies. I like like the one like I I like the one thing I really think you know the problem with Hollywood kind of romantic comedies they're very broad and they're often very high concept and they don't actually get to the root of how love works or relationship works and all of that but the one thing that they do have is that the people in them are almost always charming <laughs> actors and that's like that's one of the cheap joys of mm-hmm. of seeing a romantic comedy is to see two charming people charming each other and falling in love, um, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily movie stars. I mean, that's that's true of Annie Hall. Like Annie Hall is two very funny, charming people, you know, charming each other and falling in love. You know, when Harry met Sally, it's not you know Billy Crystal's not a traditional handsome male lead, but it's just about sort of the way they relate to each other and everything. And I'm and I think. Movies about romances with people who are weird and and sort of outsider and stuff. I really like them, but I think that there's a way that it often happens in independent films where they try to have their cake and eat it too, where they make their characters weirdo. Like they make their characters weirdos, but they make them endearingly weird. So people who feel like weirdos will relate to it as opposed to actually making kind of outside. Like so an example of an actual romance between two weirdos that are actually weirdos would be Rocky. Like Rocky, both Adrian and Rocky are the weirdest <laughs> fucking people. And all the scenes where he's flirting with her and she is so shy. She's not like quirky. I work at a pet store and I'm so weird. And I have a little book of poetry and I, I draw cartoons. The like she, pixie dream girl. Yeah. She's not that at all. She's just like catatonic. She's just like so inside herself. She can't even say anything. And he is so dumb, like that everything he says is just ridiculous. Like that to me is a really great, like film of of a romance between two outsiders, two weird people, because it, 
like in in the story of in the underdog sports boxing story, they make you care about Rocky. Um, but in the actual romance, they don't like they don't reveal. You know, uh, you know. I don't know. He just feels more legitimately. He feels more authentically like a weird person you would meet as opposed to a, a, a very twee kind of person. <laughs> and I feel I felt that way very strongly about Jack Goes Boating. Jack Goes Boating, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a character that's very odd and he kind of mumbles a lot and he's doesn't make eye contact very well with people. And the and the what is the name of the actress in Jack Goes Boating? Amy Ryan. Okay, and Amy Ryan she is very distant and she has, you know, trauma and there's that really amazing scene where they like they start to have sex and it's triggering for her and she starts, you know, freaking out and they just sort of hold each other and then for the rest of the movie they just kind of hold each other and like that to me is just like, oh yeah, that's like if you want to make a non-conventional romance like that isn't, you know, sort of trying to pander to people who think you know think these kinds of things are cute or whatever and you're actually trying to tell the story of what it's like for for unconventional people to fall in love in unconventional ways like that's one of the things i really loved about jacko's boating because jacko's boating is pretty on the nose and pretty broad um in its themes and stuff but just the fact that its characters are genuinely weird as opposed to um uh I, I like joaquin phoenix's character in her just felt very twee to me um and very much like He's the he's like the cute Hollywood version of a weirdo. <laughs> you he know? plays the ukulele. It's so exactly, cute. Exactly. Exactly. He plays the goddamn motherfucking ukulele. Um you know, and if and if, if Scarlett Johansson had a little app where she had an accordion or something like that, then they'd be the perfect twee couple. But I wonder how people would have felt about her if it starred Zach Braff. Well, I mean, it, it probably wouldn't have been as good if it starred Zach Braff, because <laughs> Zach Braff's not as good of an actor. That's an interesting but, uh, point. I like your point quite a bit. So, so I, and again, a, a function of like the, the, the costume they had him wearing and the uh, the art direction of like the room he's in and you know of his apartment, and the performance itself. Yeah, I mean, he didn't seem like like an internally. Uh, he he seemed kind of internally crushed, but not. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't putting on like nerd face for it. I thought, um, and I thought he would. Like, a, uh, I, was, I feel like maybe a little bit his voice. <laughs> I feel like his voice felt a little bit of like quote unquote nerd face, <laughs> like <laughs> like it's a he I, I don't know and the, and again I I yeah I agree with you a lot of it is the choices that are outside of his performance which is probably why he was able to get through to me uh, with his performance was because uh, he committed to it so hard um, and he I don't think. He, you know, he committed to it. He committed to his performance in her as hard as he committed to his performance in the master. Um, and when your character is not as a crazy raging id, <laughs> and your character is more nuanced, it's a lot harder to just commit um, because you can't just adopt new physicality and voice and everything and and make faces and like and. But he does commit really fucking hard in her. So I think Joaquin Phoenix is really good in her. But yeah, I just thought that was that was something else that just it bothers me a little bit. It's not a major complaint I have with the movie, but it's just something in general with these kinds of films that bothers me, um, which is just sort of the idea of the cute version of shy as opposed to like actual shy people are really socially awkward and <laughs> like awkward doesn't awkward doesn't mean makes makes a joke that the audience gets and laughs at, but their date doesn't. Awkward <laughs> means they say something horribly inappropriate, <laughs> like. Yeah, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
awkward means socially maladjusted. Not. I mean, uh, it wasn't Silver Linings Playbook in that regard. No, it was. That that was a film I thought that 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 really, really screwed up with the, with the awkward crazy stuff. Like that oh was, yeah yeah like that 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 the awkward the crazy and the and the charming romance felt like just like it felt like each scenes would be from different movies. They didn't feel like one and the same. But we we have talked in fact on the last uh, Directors Club <laughs> podcast episode about Silver Linings Playbook, and I know Jim's a big fan, so I'm going to move on. I will, <laughs> I will say, and I just wonder if like romantic movies featuring socially awkward people. I'm immune to criticism. Like, yeah, it just shuts down your brain. And yeah. you're, like, you're like, in for a penny, in for a pound, I'm in. It's kind of frustrating. Eh. <laughs> well, we all have those things. I mean, at least yours isn't horror movies shot on VHS, because that's mine. Ooh. <laughs> I'm actually interested in this, because I used to watch a lot of horror movies on VHS. Just not um, lately. I just watched, I watched Blood Cult the other day, and I was blown away at, by it. Um, it's not a very good movie, but the aesthetic... It feels way more professional than the aesthetic of a film shot on Betamax should look, hmm. and it created a weird sensation in my brain while I was watching it. But that's not what I want to talk about. I actually want to talk about, and I don't want to take too much time, um, but I saw seven short films from Sundance 2013, and it was amazing. It's so good. Um, I feel like people should watch more short films. I am definitely, this year, want to try to make a habit of watching more short films um, because – I mean, there's so many problems with feature film. Like, there's so many feature films that would be really great if they could just not be feature films. Like, Rubber. there's so many. What's that? Rubber. <laughs> no, I, I, all I can I, say is rubber. Yeah, no, I, I think rubber works fine. I, yeah. I think wrong maybe because I wrong I could only get through 12 minutes of, but rubber is oh, rubber is outstanding. But that's, that's funny. <laughs> but no, there are like there are films where they just. Um, it's, they're just smaller portraits of things. Mm-hmm. And like, for example, so the first film that we watched was this film is a, st- it was a student film from Finland. It's called the date. And it's about people who own kind of champion cat show cats, um, setting their cats up for a date so they can, you know, mate with the stud and stuff like that. So it's these people, it's very, it's, it was a very brief film and it, but it, and it was these, this teenager who has to let, um, the owners of this cat in for, cause his mom's at work. And he makes tea for them and they sort of sip tea and they sort of try to chat idly while the rigorous sounds of cat fucking is going on in the background. Oh boy. It is it is <laughs> it's a really funny premise. But then there's this other sort of twist to it where um where there's also um the people who bring the cat to his place is a mother and her teenage daughter who's about his age. And there is sort of a very subtle, unspoken flirting between them, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the and the, the juxtaposition of the sort of awkward, um, you know, glances and you know, you because you your if your parents are right there, you can't let on <laughs> that you love you know that you like are attracted to someone or something like that. Not love, but you know, are attracted. You can't flirt in front of your parents that easily. So it's all in little sideways glances and stuff. But then the, that longing sort of uh, contrasted by, again, the vigorous sounds of cat fucking <laughs> sort of like as, as sort of the soundtrack of their desires. Uh, it was really fantastic. And it, yeah, it was a short film to date. I don't it's not on YouTube. Um, you, you say cat fucking. I'm in. Yeah, um, there was a, the next one was a bit longer. It was a it was. Uh, a film called Whiplash, which there was a feature-length version played at Sundance this year and got sold. Um, 
and it has J.K. Simmons as this band teacher, and it is <laughs> and I so I haven't seen the feature, but the short is written and directed by the same guy, um, and J.K. Simmons is the same character in both, and it is the single greatest J.K. Simmons role I've ever seen, which is to say. Um, he dances back and forth between funny and really scary and intimidating. Like, Ooh. like, really. Like her. It like is. Oz. What's that? Like, in Oz. J. Oh, I've, I've actually never seen Oz. Um, oh. My partner who I saw it with sat, mentioned that, though, like that he's sort of a similar character in that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's interesting performance because I've only ever seen him be funny in anything else. Sort of goofy character, and he's horrifying in Oz. Oh well, he's Whiplash is one of the most tense movies I've ever seen, and it takes place in a in a music school, in a band room. So it's a very mundane setting that you know so many people have been in. It's just the band room with all the music stands and all these people set up. Um, and there's a new kid in the short film. It's played by Johnny Simmons. I think in the feature it's going to be he's played by Miles Teller. But oh yeah, everybody loves that kid. He's good. <laughs> he's really good. That's why. Uh, but, um, but in, and it's, and you just see sort of everyone warming up and then, uh, JK Simmons walks in and they start performing and he just stops them and he'll, and he'll make them play a, he'll just call out a, the number of a bar and they all have to start again. And, <laughs> and it's, it's really exciting to watch, even though it's just literally people sitting down in a band room playing music. Um, and then you know he throws someone out because they're out of tune or whatever, and but he's playing all these weird psychological games, and then it's Johnny Simmons who's who at this point had only been turning music pages. Um, he's like the new kid in the school or whatever, so he's just he's turning music pages for the drummer, and then it's his turn to go in and play the drums, and he starts doing you know he's doing really well, and J.K. Simmons is sort of you know marching around the room, and he's oh that's Buddy Rich over here, and he's a but then slowly, <clears throat> excuse me. Slowly, Johnny Simmons starts to, um, you know, uh, screw up or whatever. Um, but again, part of the thrill is uh, being a layman. You can't tell when he's screwing up, and J.K. Simmons just gets angrier and angrier, and it gets more and more intense. Uh, and you hear, yeah, and it's basically him playing the same drums over and over again while he gets screamed in his face. And Jesus Christ, it's one of the most intense movies I ever saw. To be honest, and and it's it's incredible, and if and honestly, like I kind of feel like the short film uh, says all it needs to say about the intensity and the like the ecstasy of performing well, and the intensity and the fear of performing badly, and the and the pressure of um, you know being in a prestigious music academy and all that. Like I feel like everything that needs to be said is said. So it'll be interesting to see how the feature expands on it. But man, I can't wait to see this. Yeah, it's awesome. Definitely. Um, I mean, I imagine when it comes to Blu-ray or DVD or whatever, they'll also include the short film, um, or they might even like release it online to promote it. I don't know. I'm hoping because I want people to see it because it's really fucking good. Um, real quick, uh, Skin and Grove is my tenth favorite movie of 2013. Um, it in and it is only a photographer, an English photographer, um, sharing slides, uh, photographs that he took while while in the remote. Uh, remote Scottish fishing village of Skinning Grove. Um, and so it is like the simplest uh, premise ever. Um, but in, and most of the, most of the screen is 
Like you don't see him. Most of the time it's just still photos and him narrating sort of what is in the photos and the the context of them and why he took them and stuff. <laughs> and just over the course of like 15 minutes as he shows you these photos, you get sucked into this world, this really fascinating idea of this fishing village where, you know, it's like the just everyone who lives there is fishing and fishing is very tied into masculinity, but it's in 1970, like eight or something. So all of the local kids that he photographed a lot, they were all into punk. So it's this sort of weird dichotomy between sort of their, their punk rock, you know, clothes and their mohawks and stuff. And also them going out and fishing because that's that they know they have to end up doing. And it, it creates this feeling and this, and, and it builds this world and the photographs are beautiful. And it's this, it's a form I never even would ever consider as a for a film, which is literally someone showing you slides. Like it is, is La Jete kind of. It well, La Jete is a fictional like film. It doesn't. It, yeah. Whereas this is a non-fictional film, though. I will say because this because the way that the thing was programmed, um, you don't. We didn't know what movies would come up or even. Or what? So, because the first two films I watched were fictional, I, I assumed at first that this was also fictional, and then my mind, and now my mind thinks like, what if someone made a short horror film about a, a man showing photographs from a remote fishing village or something like that, and it's and he slowly like uncovers something, and it's just sort of because because uh, the way he talks mm-hmm. about the 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 village's uh, relationship with the sea and everything, it almost felt like the setup of a of a uh, Lovecraft kind of a story, um, which isn't where it goes though. There is, you know, some darkness in the story about people drowning and stuff like that. And you see photos of the boy who drowned, like when he was three, and then five, and like it. It was just such an incredible experience. And this is on available in entirety on IMDb. So if you just search Skinning Grove, a uh, short film, you can watch it on the internet. And it's it's both really touching and moving, and it's a, a love letter to just the art of photography. And it's and it also is just again it's this form I'd never considered. You know, you think slideshow, you think like the worst documentary ever, Inconvenient Truth, which is just a guy standing on a stage, like fucking narrating to you. And it's and this is, an, you know, if, if you strip it down to its essentials, this is the same thing, but it's riveting, um, and it's so simple. And there's no, you don't know, like the photographer doesn't introduce, doesn't tell you what his name is. It, you don't know exactly where he is. It just. It's just stripped down to its sort of bare essentials. Here are, here are 40 or so photographs from my time I spent in Skinning Grove. And he just starts narrating. And at least I just got sucked in. It was gorgeous. Yeah, that seems to be your jam, like documentaries that play with form. You well, sir, I mean, well, I, I, I might even say I might like documentaries that play with form more than <laughs> – I might appreciate them more than they actually are good if only because – one of my chief hatreds is documentaries that have the same form as every other documentary. Um, I might disproportionately reward films that, that do stuff like that. But um, there was a very cute documentary that was all stop motion. It was very Gondry kind of a thing called Irish folk furniture. Um, And it's all, it's these Irish people in a rural village talking about the furniture they had in the forties and fifties and, um, and, uh, and sort of how their houses were set up and, uh, and then you see hear people talking about restoring the furniture, and it's all done as stop motion. So you see the furniture being restored and stuff. I really can't do it justice, but it's extremely cute. I didn't. I never would suspect that the funniest thing 
um, I would ever see is an armoire, like just tearing ass down a country <sighs> road. But there's a scene where an armoire tears ass down a country road, and it's like wow. one of my favorite things ever. I was I was dying laughing. It's so cute. Um, that is not on uh, the internet. Uh, there was an, a very brief animation called The Event, um, which was uh, an adaptation of a poem by the same name, and it's uh, the poem being narrated. It's a very surreal kind of a story that mixes uh, I and I, this is my interpretation because again it's a it's not uh, so straightforward but it mixes sort of the uh, fears of adulthood and and uh, romance uh, with um, the apocalyptic t- uh, themes uh, so it sort of mixes the mundane where it's like on the third day the seas boiled and we got checking accounts or you know like that's sort of the game it plays it's really interesting and it's only like four minutes long um so and that is online so if you search the event uh animated short you should be able to find that um there's I, a film i also caught up with that? Uh, i also caught up with something too that really surprised me because you're talking about uh you know documentaries that you know they they cover the same territory in, ter- in terms of how they're presented yeah and uh the one i saw was a sports documentary called The Crash Reel, and it really blew me away. I thought it was great. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a sucker for a good sports documentary, even though I'm not a huge fan of sports. And this one was about um, an athlete named Kevin Pierce, who was a snowboarder, and he suffered from traumatic brain injury. And it it shows his recovery and how much of a challenge it is. It's a good comeback story, but by the end it goes somewhere where I wasn't expecting. Like I was expecting something even more life affirming. And I don't know, just the way it was told, it was really well done because it didn't necessarily always rely on interviews. Um, You know, a lot of it was covering old footage from the past and I thought it was extremely compelling and a very satisfying documentary. Is that a year. is that a sh- short film or is that a feature? That is a feature. Uh huh. The Crash Reel. I never heard of that. It's great. I think it was nominated. For, I don't know if it was nominated for an Oscar, but uh, yeah, I have, it's won I, some awards. I have two more two more short films to talk about, kind of briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a film from Zanzibar called Jonah. Um, it's about two friends uh, in Zanzibar, and they're they're sort of poor, and then they steal a tourist camera and they photograph a giant fish and then a tourism industry bub- like bubbles around this giant fish and it sort of wrecks it kind of wrecks you know the the wealth and the tourists and everything kind of wreck the uh the the, the city and i don't know it 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 kind of felt like it's very heavy on special effects like the kind of special effects you see in like just commercials where like people walk through a room and then the room sort of changes as they walk through it and, you know, and the walls change and you see things built up and stuff like, you know, the kind of it, – it mostly felt like a special effects reel to be honest. That's I wasn't a show offish. Yeah, it was very, very – it was very showy. Uh, yeah. I mean I appreciate the sentiment behind the story but it was – and it was very long too for – something that didn't have much story. So that one was easily my least favorite. And then there was a uh, sort of a comedic short film called Kit – uh, K-I-T, uh, which I guess stands for keep in touch. And it's about a sort of a yuppie um, who her favorite sort of all natural grocery store, one of the employees is leaving and she's like, oh, we should keep in touch. And then it's sort of how she just goes insane trying to maintain a relationship that was never anything other than 
Oh, you bought pears. I like pears. Have a nice day. <laughs> but it's that. just it's it's pretty funny, but it it feels kind of just more like a comedy sketch than a than a film. But I enjoyed that one too. But more more importantly, just the seeing a ton of short films from a lot of different directors from different countries from different you know backgrounds. Uh, Irish folk furniture. It was made by a guy who lives in rural, rural Ireland. Um, who restores furniture with a camera that he bought on eBay. That was, and that's why he was able to make it stop motion for so cheap was because it was just like, cause he couldn't afford a, a film camera. So like, uh, you know, like there's the student film, there's skin and grow, like, and seeing, you know, sitting down in a theater and seeing all these screened in a row is a really affirming, like kind of life affirming feeling where you're like, Oh, that's right. Like, unlimited possibilities of cinema this is fantastic and really inspiring and so i imagine you know uh the oscar nominations were announced and a lot of art a lot of you know art theaters and stuff like that they're they would they'll do screenings where you can see all the oscar nominated short documentary or oscar nominated short live action or animated or whatever um i would highly recommend it because it's so great to to like just sit down and watch um yeah, again, just wildly different movies. I'll have um, to see if Grand Rapids has a short film fest of some kind. I would think so. I'll have to look into that. If not, maybe I'll just set one up myself. Yeah, and if, you know, and if, and a lot of, I mean, it's 2014, so a lot of short films now are also just online. So I, I just feel like the more I, I watch short films, even when there are short films I don't particularly like, like I watched an experimental short film recently. Uh, called G-Man that was from the cinema of transgression, which was like this kind of uh, experimental film movement from the late 70s, early 80s in New York. And it was kind of awful and weird and hard to watch. But even that movie, like there are parts of it that I just – you get a lot out of because it's because it's short. So you can see sort of how the film works uh, as a whole in a very brief period of time and – its structure becomes more obvious and the way it tells the stories becomes more obvious and it just sort of makes you think about those things and it's easier to just, they're more apparent, I guess. Hmm. Um, so yeah, everyone should watch more short films. My One of my favorite films of 2013 started out as a short film. And that's that was right. short term 12. Oh, 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 that's right. And then one of your favorite films of 2012 was three short films. Uh, yes. The uh, what's the what's the animator's oh, name? Oh yeah, it's a beautiful, it's such a beautiful day guy. Yeah, yeah, it's such a yeah. No, that's his name. It's such a beautiful day guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I, I don't I know. Think, maybe I, I think maybe I'm gonna start writing like start posting links to short films on the blog or something. That'd be awesome. Um, I'd be done with that. So I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm, like, gonna, I'm definitely gonna check out the the, the two big ones that you mentioned because. Uh, I love photography, and I was in high school band, so I yeah. think I'll get a lot out of both of those. Yeah, so Skin and, Skin and Grove is online. Uh, Whiplash is not, so we'll we'll see if the short will ever surface or whatever. But uh, sweet, thanks, Patrick. Yeah, That's great. You're welcome, Jim. <laughs> I'm so excited to move on, though. Yeah, so, I uh, bet you are. Our guests can jump in too, and talk a lot about Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven. I can tell you're having a 
He mostly started with TV. Uh, he made a few documentaries for the Netherlands Navy, I believe. But uh, uh, he, he mostly did his work on TV. Did some short films, uh, some short documentaries. But um, it was uh, it, what really brought him to the national scene was Turkish Delight, um, which is fitting because I can't think of a more Paul Ver- Ver- Verhoeven-y movie. <laughs> um, if, uh, if if indeed uh, Rutger Hauer in Turkish Delight. Is just sort of a raging id of a man. Um, this film is sort of the raging artistic id <laughs> of Paul Verhoeven. Um, mm-hmm. it, it has all of his favorite. It has all of his favorite topics. It has uh, you know uh, all of his favorite purient topics, which is uh, explicit and uh, casual sex, um, aggressive um, anti-establishment sort of behavior, uh, kind of. Uh, this film not as subversive as something like RoboCop and Starship Troopers, if only because it's so on the nose. But it's very much uh, sort of thumbing its nose at, at the establishment. Um, it's it feels it feels very much like a like an early seventies uh, American film uh, in that it's almost a little just too 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 enthusiastic and too proud of itself for saying fuck you to the system and to to the old guard. Um, but uh, it's. It is it it is it has it has an incredible energy. It has the it has the ener- the sexual energy of again um, uh, 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 of uh, oh, Jesus Christ uh, the, the actor Rucker Hauer. Gee, mm-hmm. I'm so bad names. As the the film mirrors his sexual energy with its own energy and its pace and its speed and its uh, sort of. <laughs> aggressive abandonment of uh, form uh, of narrative um, to the point where it feels like some parts are real and then some parts are fantasy and you're not exactly sure which parts are real and fantasy and or um, which parts are like you know present which parts are past it's it's very uh, messy energy, ener- yeah messy energetic film very messy it's as messy as uh, say uh, licking the back of a photograph. Uh, sticking it on your wall and then jerking off on that wall. Sounds like every night to me. Yeah, yeah. It's sounds messy like in about every way. It could be messy. There, just about every every thing that can come out of a body. <laughs> That's right. It has a lot of shit in it too, and yeah. and, and piss and vomit. And, and, and vomit. Yes, vomit. People people offering to lick shit and piss <laughs> and and vomit. Um. It is it, it is gleefully uh, disgusting. Um, it is sort of I would it would be um, if it weren't also very off-puttingly kind of uh, rapey and gross in that way. It would be uh-huh. I would feel like it'd be like the ultimate film about the sexual revolution, if only because it's so such a whirlwind of sex and energy and, and youthful exuberance, but. Yeah, there is that other element to it, which is that Rudger Hauer's character uh, is very, very aggressive and, and rapey and, and does rape and does, in fact, rape in this movie. And the film kind of the attitude this film has towards those moments as like kind of as if they're kind of 
youthful dalliances the same way as like shenanigans or something. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but I mean, that to me also kind of, again, what makes this a really, uh, what makes me glad we're talking about this movie is because it does feel like sort of the Rosetta stone for Paul Verhoeven's work, which is if you did not give Paul Verhoeven a form or genre to play in or a hard story, this is just all the things that he would have filled it with. Um, just in a messy pile in the middle of your living room. <laughs> almost feels almost feels autobiographical, kind of in the way her is. <laughs> like this is what interests him clearly. This is this is exactly his his stuff. And uh, and Rutger Howard, the, the attitude about sex. I mean, it, it's that's that's what is being communicated in this film for sure. It has this effortless wickedness to it. <laughs> that yeah. I don't know if you ever saw this movie, Patrick, called Spun. Uh, I've not seen Spun. Isn't okay. that about uh, meth-, meth addicts? Yeah. I mean, it's. I guess it was you know Requiem for a Dream only with with meth, and for some reason, whether it be the way Aronofsky tells a story and has that rhythmic editing style that I found really infectious and interesting. Spun exhausted me. It was just too much uh, excess and, like, you know, Mina Savari's poop, and I don't know. Just, like, I understand you're trying to portray, you know, uh, impulse and addiction gone uh, haywire, and I, I, I will say with Turkish Delight that I, I didn't... Hate it. I just, I think I, I think I was just exhausted by it. It felt like, it felt a lot like Glass Tango in Paris, only with you know a faster pace and more energy. Uh, I, I will say that I do love Verhoeven's sort of go for broke audacity in the majority of his movies, and he's you know has no bones about portraying raw sexuality uh, in both this and Fourth Man. Uh, but I think I'm more on board with Verhoeven as a cartoonish action director. I mean, I I will say that Turkish Delight, you're right, is kind of like, you know, the Rosetta Stone of what he finds interesting. Um, but it just didn't hook me the way some of his other movies did. Um, but that doesn't make it a bad movie at all. I think it, maybe I was just, after coming off Fourth Man, you know, a, a movie that's clearly uh, faster paced and even more uh, focused on it gone awry. Uh, just kind of, I don't know, by the end I was just, mm, I felt more turned off by it than turned on. I, 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 would, I would be able to forgive it more for, even for being offensive and gross in the ways that I think it is offensive and gross as far mm-hmm. as sexism and, again, just it's casual uh, depiction of rape and stuff. I would even be more forgiving of that if only because it feels like the movie is trying to capture uh, that a very specific attitude and it's a very youthful sure. sort of a thing and it's a very aggressive, youthful sort of, you know, just big middle finger. Um, and in that way, like, you know, it definitely succeeds. It is a provocation. But what makes me not able to even embrace it fully on those terms is that it in the final say like 20 30 minutes it becomes a very different movie yeah and 
really unconvincingly so. Like that tonal shift does not <laughs> I do not buy it for a second. It become basically what happens is it, Paul Verhoeven play or not Paul Verhoeven. Uh Paul Verhoeven stand in Rutger Hauer <laughs> <laughs> plays a sexually deviant uh you know, you you could probably say sex addict um if but it's not a film that chooses to engage on terms like that or yeah. to to even engage in terms of diagnoses. But he's a he's a sexual deviant sculptor who's to be fair, he's a beautiful man. Uh Rutger Hauer has beautiful eyes and he has great hair in this too. Um and uh he meets someone who has uh, nearly as much uh sexual desire as he does to the point where um yeah. he he immediately hits on her uh and starts talking about her vagina within like ten seconds of her picking him up. Uh, when he's hitchhiking and then she goes, Oh, you, well, you should probably like fuck me. <laughs> and then they do. And then, and they're like, Oh yeah, that was great. And then, you know, because they're both, I think she is young, actually younger than him. And he is, uh, he is just sort of stuck in the mindset of the, the horniest, most hormone driven 17 year old boy of all time. That's, that's him at all times. Um, and so, but so it, with that youthful exuberance, they quickly decide that they love each other and that they must get married. Um, but he tires her out, and which is all, which is you know, which is a, which is all fine. I and I like that stuff a lot, even though I will agree with Jim, it can get very tiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this this movie can get very tiring. Uh, it is not nearly as long as Wolf of Wall Street, but I feel that the pe- the complaints that are sometimes leveled against Wolf of Wall Street as far as it, it's just it's just nonstop partying and drugs and it like that to me is actually what Turkish Delight feels yeah. like. Where okay. It is a it, hedonistic romp. Basically. Yes, absolutely. And, in, and I mean, and I don't think that is something that is, you know, that sh- it shouldn't be celebrated on its own right. Like, <laughs> you know, in its own right. I do think, I do think just achieving such a pure hedonistic romp is its own good thing. But the problem is they, she gets tired of him. He's very tiring and she leaves him and he goes nuts and he even rapes her. And again, it's like depicted as if, because he, he finds her when she's asleep and he just starts fucking her and she starts screaming. They kick him out and it's like, Oh man. And that, isn't that funny that he's just so crazy about her that he'd do like that. That scene really is where I just turned on the movie completely. Yeah. Uh, and I could not, and I was, I, I could not, I could no longer defend it uh, as I was, as I, as I'm, as I'm always want to when I'm watching a Verhoeven movie as a very sex positive <laughs> kind of, you know, like at, at that point I'm like, oh no, this is Verhoeven's just uh, a horny old bastard, uh, or at that point a horny young bastard. Um, but, but then uh, after she leaves him, they meet up again later in life and she's dying of cancer. It's a very love story kind of a thing. And it's all about just her dying of cancer and him being there for her. And suddenly he is not that way anymore. Suddenly he is just like patient with her and like, there's no growth. (laughs) There's no arc there. It is a switch that is flipped in him. The second he sees her like vulnerable or whatever. And it is such a, it's such a cliche story to tell. It is such a, if it feels like incorrect story to tell with this film that that those last 20 minutes really make me like the movie a lot and even respect the movie a lot less than I would have otherwise. Yeah. It's a total shift that it felt very jarring to me. Well, it um, is kind of, it, it is kind of, 
in keeping with the the sort of teenager melodrama of it. Like the, it it looks and feels like kind of like a fifties movie, like like or a sixties Ryan O'Neill movie with just a lot more just, just horrible fucking and, and graphic sexual imagery. Um, like most of it is, you know, is boy meets girl and then, you know, they get married and he has trouble with her parents and, you know, like playing around being in love. And then, and then they're parted because her brain, what, what is it? Uh, a, it's what, a what's wrong with yeah. Tumor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same structure as, you know, just, a. I mean, it's almost the exact same structure as Love Story, yeah, isn't it? But uh, that, just with uh, with graphic sexuality, and I think full of shit. I, I think I, I, that's a good point. Um, I will say maybe maybe the reason it doesn't bridge that gap well, at least for me, um, as far as depicting both the exuberance and the and the melodrama of being a teenager, is that uh, it is so much better <laughs> at the hedonistic exuberance <laughs> than it is at the melodrama. <laughs> Uh, and Love maybe that's just either. I mean, that's you know, it's not a great structure. Yeah, it really, it really isn't. Um, but again, Rucker Hauer, he, it is a performance that makes it feels you know, it's something you can compare it to like Joaquin Phoenix in, in The Master or something like that, where it's just total committal to being this <laughs> like total raging id. Um, it's an exhaustively physical performance. It is uh, Verhoeven at the very least. He's an equal opportunity uh, nudity depictor. Um, yeah, yeah. We, not, we not only open the film looking at uh, Rucker Hauer's taint. Uh, the 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 because of the structure of the film chronologically, it circles back, and we get to watch the scene where we see Rucker Hauer's taint again, uh, <laughs> like in a in a in a in a. Uh, in a disgusting and beautiful uh, cross section uh, of all of his, of his genitals, um, as he's laid out on his bed, it is, it is like you you can't not respect just at least the daring. Oh um, yeah, it's a film I respect and appreciate and admire more than I enjoyed. Yeah, and it, it was and to be and it was. Uh, I do think I, I I do agree with you, Jim. I think I think uh, Verhoeven is better when he's not left to his own devices. I kind of almost feel the same way about, and obviously they're drastically different filmmakers. But I kind of feel the same way about David Lynch, which is when David Lynch is playing in things like soap opera and 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 noir and uh, mystery and stuff like that. The films are much better than when uh, he has sort of just let his uh, the inner the in, the contents of his brain loose yeah. on the screen. Um, and I, I feel that way about Ball Verhoeven. Like, like uh, it makes for a messy um, and gross and uneven uh, art film <laughs> to 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 just depict that. But it makes for a really satisfyingly uh, aggressive action film. So, <laughs> like, so all the things, all of the things that make Verhoeven so gleefully, uh, you know, pushing pushing the the boundaries of good taste that make that film feel gross, which is to say like, uh, you know, he's obviously trying to offend you, not just with depictions of sex, but, uh, with the, again, the rapey kind of attitude, uh, where that is, that really, you know, just puts me off completely. But that same attitude that he brings to that movie, when he brings it to total recall, it means that all of the squibs 
<laughs> that everyone has in that movie are giant uh, and it's way more violent than it should be or needs to be and it just makes that movie that much more entertaining and um, I get like yeah. Yeah, his older films or you know his action movies are very joyful and I understand like people thinking that the violence even something like Robocop when you know he's being shot up like that is that exploitive you know I mean people like I know that Verhoeven himself like said something like, "Oh, we gotta acknowledge our dark nature." You know, our, the dark things that yeah. we have. <laughs> yeah, he says that. Um, I don't. Have you, either you guys see Soldier of Orange? Not I yet. I saw the first half of Soldier of Orange. It's it's not, not like that at all. It's hmm. maybe the only film that is. It's it's like somebody else directed it. Honestly, uh, there's there's parts of it. Again, it is moments. Moments. like. There's a there's a fair amount of it that is just the the sort of like it opens on sort of a fraternity hazing and That's that Verhoeven moment yeah that that whole sequence is very Verhoeven and I think the fact that it is his personal story he was a member of a, a student sort of organization in the Netherlands um, you know during the occupation uh, I believe he, during the Oh no no yeah. that was that was later cuz he was born in 38 so he would not have been a college student during Yeah he was a child uh at the Hague which is where the soldier born takes place for the most part. Uh, but yeah so that that feels Verhoeven as far as it just being his personal story and it's I think it's really good. I think that movie actually kind of solves the problem <laughs> of of um of cutting him of sort of cutting the Verhoeven <laughs> a bit so it's not so pure and harsh uh <laughs> But it does so without having to be inherently genre. Like mm-hmm. all of the, all of the depictions of the initial invasion of the Netherlands, um, where you just see bombs going off, and they're just German soldiers marching across roads, and they're not, and they're not really acknowledging, they're not attacking citizens from the Netherlands, but they're also just, they're just there, and they're just using their force to exist there, and. And uh, and they air ra- they air raid siren going off and everyone leaving all of their vehicles in the middle of the street and running to the sides like like all of that stuff is had to be just from his memories of that sort of thing, yeah. Um, and that's all really great. So I think I think Soldiers of Orange is really good. Um, and 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 it does so without being. I mean, it is a there are war movies that are tell similar stories and stuff, but it's not a genre movie in the way that RoboCop or Starship Troopers are genre movies. Yeah, I definitely like him as a genre director primarily, but uh, Black Book was kind of a nice marriage. Of, Black Book's really good. Yeah, I like okay. that. I mean, it, it gets out there a couple times too. Oh sure, but it seems more motivated there. Certainly more motivated than Turkish Delight. Uh, yeah, like uh, the, the prison scene is probably the first thing everyone thinks of in that, and mm-hmm. that makes sense. That's that part of part of the story he's telling there, right? And and seeing that that character kind of rise up from that moment and you know I now a woman in any of his movies she's really good yeah. <laughs> well yeah um in black no it's black book i it's been a while i think i only saw it in like 2007 um when that when it was sort of released on dvd in america is that film um is that in the netherlands too is that uh is that take place in the netherlands or what what country does Black Book take place in? I believe it takes place in. Uh, well, do, he he winds or she winds up uh, becoming a mole for the Dutch resistance. Okay, so and, it's the 
Yeah, I mean, it's, she's pretty much placed I, I, in the middle of the Nazi party. Because one of the things I've, I really enjoyed about Soldier of Orange is it sort of muddled the idea of uh, World War II as far as there are – there's the good guys and they, that's these countries and there are the bad guys and those mm-hmm. are these countries as far as like there are collaborators within the Netherlands. There are people who go out to see the Nazis march in the parade. There are clearly anti-Semitic characters um, <laughs> even, even among, even, even among the, the main characters that you – you know that you have an investment in he doesn't you know he he doesn't try to make them act like they hate the nazis because of of the holocaust he hate they hate them because they're occupying their country and their patriots mm-hmm. and like it it sort of muddles the idea and black book does that too cuz it sort of it, it sort of muddles the idea well these people can be you know just as horrifically savage to anyone who they're given uh they're they're given clear clearance to be savage to which is once World War II ended, which anyone who is identified as a Nazi or was identified as a Nazi but was actually a mole. Yeah. As, as There's happens. There's a good Nazi in it too, isn't there? There's like a – one of the Nazis ends up being an okay guy in that, right? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he, he, he's good at sending up like you know who's good and evil and uh, he, I kind of like his – ambivalence in that regard you know identity kind of gets skewed a bit but the one thing i really liked about black book was that the character who's in danger during the war is actually in worse danger after the war exactly all her entanglements and involvements and stuff so. and it's sort of it's sort of yeah and again it's just it it calls inherently the question of because someone is this in this part of in, because someone is on this side of a national border does that inherently mean that they are this kind of person? Right. And because someone's on the other side, does that mean they're inherently a good person or an evil person? Or you know, like, um, it does Black Book ha- again? It's been a while. Has Black Book have humor? Because even uh, Soldier of Orange has a fair amount of humor. Definitely not, you know, any kind of broad humor to it. I mean, I don't, I don't recall there like being necessarily like a wacky character at all. Uh, I, I think. You know, people were just so taken aback of him making this kind of movie, almost almost like his Inglorious Bastards in a way. Um, you know, after something like Hollow Man, I think people were like, "Oh my God!" You know, he, he he could still make something with a lot of substance behind it. It definitely feels like the synthesis of the the Dutch films and the American films. Yeah, yeah, like like it's the the type of film he was making uh, with more of the experience and the. Uh, the just the style of a Hollywood film. It, yes. It's very entertaining, very watchable. I didn't get to watch that again for this, but I, I remember enjoying it quite a bit. Um, we should talk about his Hollywood films. Yeah, I'm excited to do that. We actually. should. The, the Hollywood film we're going to be talking about is, uh, of course, Starship Troopers, 1997. Jim, uh, why don't you explain Starship Troopers to our audience who, uh, I mean, clearly, <sighs> these are people who like movies who download podcasts, so they've probably never seen Starship Troopers. I doubt it. <laughs> Do you remember, though, that one of the first times we hung out and I looked at your um, DVD collection, I was like, guess what? I haven't seen Starship Troopers yet. And you went, what? I did do Well, you have to understand, when we first started hanging out, I had yet to do my operation or... I, I used to be a Muppet, John. Mm-hmm. Um, I was made out of felt. I had all my felt parts replaced with skin parts. I had all my felt organs replaced by skin organs. I am now uh, a human being. Um, 
you know, I, I, I am that person now. But at that point, oh. I was a Muppet, so I was more apt to go, what? I missed your, it sounded a little bit like a Muppet meets Tim Allen. But yeah. I, I miss you being furry and fuzzy. I miss my arm rods. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I did you write off now? Did you, Jim? Did you write off Starship Troopers at that point as as a dumb Hollywood sci-fi uh, special effects? I think, I, did. I, think yeah. I did. I mean, I just was like, I don't want to see a bunch of giant killer bugs for two hours. You know, I don't know. Maybe like I just. It, I'm, I was reading reviews too that were kind of torn at the time, and I remember like uh, Ebert mentioning that the satire was kind of buried in the midst of all this incredible action. Uh, and now I really like seeing it a second time, especially. I think it's one of the best satires. It's really about how war is packaged and sold through pop propaganda. Um, it's amazing people didn't get it at the time. Yeah, it is actually. Like, it, it's right out there. But that being said, I'm not really a fan of Casper Van Dien or Denise Richards at all. <laughs> uh, and I, I realize that maybe he's making these characters a bit kind of insipid, like, as a commentary on, like, 90210 or something, you know? Just well, like, it, again, it's more just the propaganda film. It's the blue, it's the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sure. uh, like, all-American football star and it's the and it's the you know stu- it's a, and they're all white. <laughs> all the main characters are <laughs> yeah. white. Like like in Buenos uh, Aires, they all have names. Carmen Ibanez, yeah. Denise Richards, <laughs> mm-hmm. Johnny Rico. They're um, yeah. it, it's Saved by the Bell char- character, basically. right? I I think that's I I think they're bad actors, mm-hmm. um, and I think even Denise Richards is maybe not even good in the context of this movie. I think um, she's the flaw. I think she's the yeah. flaw in the film. Like, yeah. everyone else is kind of pulling off the tone that they're going for with a lot more ease. And, yeah. And that's yeah. kind of the, one of the trickier characters. She's she's not up to it, really. But um, but other than that, like, I, I, I like I like Casper uh, uh, Van Dien in this. Um, eh. I do. I, I will. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's always hard. I, I, I do think maybe if this movie had come out post 9-11, it would be a lot more obvious to people. But hmm. coming out in 1997 in a time where America wasn't really embroiled in a big war and like America hadn't really experienced propaganda like this, uh, like I think – I mean I don't think this movie would be able to be made the way it is if it came out post 9-11. But I also think that audiences weren't necessarily as primed to see satire and that sort of thing as they were – in the you know in in the next decade. Mm-hmm. When did Saving Private Ryan come out? Saving Private Ryan, I think, was ninety seven as well. Oh, yeah, nice. same year, same hmm. year. So like saving, so like Starship Troopers is basically mocking the kind of movie yeah. that it's not the the kind of movie that Saving Private Ryan is, but the kind of movie that Saving Private Ryan draws legacy from. Right. Yeah. You know, and much like Brazil satirizes this sort of bureaucratic totalitarianism uh verhoven manages to satirize fascism and maybe by doing that he's also commenting on the action-driven war movie at the same time um but i man i i really really love starship troopers more and more i watch it i think it's like i think the effects hold up quite well um that was that was one of the most surprising things yeah i don't know how they hold up well 
Really? Yeah, I don't. I don't either. It's the ships <laughs> are models. Like the ships are models, and they look great. But yeah. the Uggs. I mean, you can even tell they're CGI. They still look perfect. They're, they're great. It's that movie came out more than fifteen years ago. Watch a movie from like two thousand, a CGI driven movie from like two thousand five, and it looks dreadful. Always. I don't know. I, is it just because they don't model anything that exists in real world with CGI, and therefore hmm. there's not that disconnect, or is it? That the bugs are so well designed as to be easily depicted via CGI. I'm not exactly sure. I think it's probably. I think it's definitely that. I. I mean, on the other hand, you got like Jurassic Park is the same kind of way. I mean, that movie still looks yeah really good. The Mummy films, unwatchably bad CGI at this point. <sighs> I think yeah. it's just a matter of good versus bad visual effects. Like I, they, they, I, good back well, I mean, then, they remain good. But if you look at the mummy, like the mummy, mummies are actual objects that exist in the real world, and that you can, you, when you watch a mummy, when you watch, <laughs> when you watch, I mean, they're and they're actual people too. I should, I shouldn't just call them objects. Um, but, <laughs> but you look, you watch, a, you watch, you know, you watch the mummy in the back of your head. You have the history of having seen photographs of mummies, or maybe even seen a actual mummy in a museum or something like that, and so. Or seen a like sand clouds with faces and stuff though too. I don't know? think that stuff aged as poorly. I think <laughs> I really I really think it is CGI is about just picking your battles and I think part of what makes Starship Troopers so I mean part of what makes it good is it's not all CGI. like when they go close up on a bug that's been like downed and like when um, when uh, oh what's the guy from The Wire who's in this uh, uh, Patrick Carver oh. Carver, yeah. 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 <laughs> Carver from the wire, like when he goes up and he's just screaming and firing in that bug's face, that's an actual like model. Uh I don't know, I think it picks his battles well, but it also it also is I mean, you're John, you're not wrong in that this movie probably like Jurassic Park just had a fucking ton of money behind it. Um, this dude, you, this must have lost money, I'm guessing. Oh yeah, this had to. Uh I well, you know what? I don't think it was a big hit. The in on IMDb trivia, it cl- IMDb trivia claims, um, and I noticed this because it, it claims the same thing on every single one of the movies that's exampled, is that this is one of four films by Paul Verhoeven that was successful that later went on to have franchises that weren't successful, because um, <laughs> uh, they were either direct to video or they failed at the box office. So hold on, let you know what I'm going on box office mojo right now. Oh man, this lost a lot of money. This, yeah, I think I remember that when it came out. The domestic total gross is only uh, 54 million, and it cost 105 million to make. Yeah, yeah. So this was this is probably I mean what after this he made uh, Hollow Man. Hollow Man. That was, yeah. and then that was it for him in Hollywood. That was it. Uh, after after making after making so much money um, with you know RoboCop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct in, in a row, I think Showgirls probably didn't make its money back. But uh, but yeah, Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers. Uh, at least someone put the money behind it. I'm glad that I'm glad that there are people like Paul Verhoeven who have tastes that are purient enough that they can trick uh, studio executives into throwing a ton of fucking money. Not that this was like his. Not that this film was like his baby or anything, but like, at, at someone at the studio had to sign off on the dailies, and the dailies showed some fucking ridiculous 
would you like to know more? And showed all those little kids smashing the bugs and stuff. Like, I'm glad that that there are directors who are talented, but also they're the kind of movies they want to make, at least in genre and um, in scale, line up with Hollywood tastes. I would, I would, I before I saw Pacific Rim, I would have said the same thing about Guillermo del Toro, but now I kind of have a different feeling about his films and. And when when Hollywood and him match up, it's usually not a good thing. Yeah, I need to catch up with that because there are people who love that movie, and there are people who are completely indifferent to it. Because I think it's it's interesting to see in light of something like Starship Troopers, where special effects are so beautifully integrated, um, and it, you never like are taken out of the movie to go, "Oh man, that looks fake," you know. Well, I mean, it's uh, I you you know it. It doesn't. I mean, it's very cl- like like John said. It's very clearly CGI. Yeah, it just looks like good CGI. Right. Um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say that in 2014 the effects from Pacific Rim don't look as good as the effects in Starship Troopers. Hmm. I'm just uh, I'm just saying I'm glad that they won't movie, age well. I'm yeah maybe not. Uh, um, but I'm glad that there is a movie. Uh, that hundred there over a hundred million dollars was put into it, and it has that subversive angle to it. That subversive kind of anti-war, anti-fascist kind of angle to it. It's kind of um, amazing they even gave him a hundred million dollars to make this film with, with no name actors, other than like Clancy Brown and that, uh, a, <laughs> just a fascist um, satire. You know uh, I what? guess you said they'll be shooting bugs and there'll be boobs in it, and then that that was it. I Maybe guess. it's because it was going to be an adaptation of a. I, well, I'm not sure how beloved the particular novel is, but people are fans of that uh, author. He hit with Total Recall, which is a, a sci-fi book adaptation. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But, but Starship Troopers is first and foremost a uh, the I'm sorry the novel Starship Troopers is first and foremost sort of a, a philosophical exploration. It wasn't mm-hmm. like a classic sci-fi series that you know that had several books in the series and it sold millions of copies. It wasn't. It's uh, like. It, it it would be as if you know it would be like adapting uh, 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 Stalker, <laughs> you know the 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 on the Tarkovsky movie. Like it's more that kind of sci-fi novel than it is uh, a Star Wars. Sure. But I think maybe they just thought they could pull a Star Wars out of this um, <laughs> with the visuals and with the director. Um, but I I you know I know I not consider that John, but I think you're right. The fact that this movie was made for $100 million and had no stars in it is really probably the more surprising thing because, mm-hmm. I mean, studio executives, they don't – they, they you know, they could probably tell this was a quirky kind of movie, but they probably just interpreted that as fun. So they probably didn't get just how darkly satirical and subversive yeah, yeah. this movie was. But studio executives, it's rare that they'll put that kind of movie behind if there isn't a uh, – uh, a big name star behind it, but uh, well, they were going to make the star out of Casper Van Dien. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's he has the chops. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, but his hair is blonde and his eyes are blue, so uh, <laughs> he's box office gold as far as I'm concerned. Um, I like, uh, I like. Uh, one of the funny things about Starship Troopers is um, how inclusive it is. Uh, gender-wise, yeah, there's gender uh, equality in the fascist future. That that's so weird. Like it is. <laughs> it's such a weird. Like it doesn't really even fit with the themes. Really, no, you're they, right. Co-ed showering, gotta love it. <laughs> there's nothing to parse with that. It's just like, yep, we 
we figured that out. Yeah, we're fascists now, but we're fa- we're fascists <laughs> now, but we have gender equality and we can do like running flips in, when we play football. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, I do, I do like like it is it is it is cool to just see uh to see uh, a war movie in which that ha- like this is probably the only war movie that has that kind of uh co-ed feeling. Yeah. That's kind of neat. Um, I, I like the sequence when all the bugs and flying insects are uh you know uh, invading the the trooper's fortress. I just oh, the, Yeah, the, the, the Zulu sequence. Yeah. That is awesome. And you know there's Definitely some tense moments towards the end involving, uh, it's like, man, these bugs are kidnapping now. What the fuck? You know? <laughs> it's just like... Chuck these brains out, that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really effective, and yet it's actually smart, you know? And I think we need more action movies that sort of embrace this kind of subversive element as well. Like, you know, I love when directors insert their own brand of social commentary and yet can make a great piece of escapist entertainment. Yeah. I, this movie, I will say, I think I appreciate a movie like this more where it's a smart, dumb movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to uh, like, so a movie like this or like RoboCop, they're like smart, dumb movies, which is to say the plots are ludicrous. The care, the acting is over the top and silly. The scripts are, are, are like has all these crazy one-liners and stuff like that, um, but it's smart the way they do it and the way it's subversive and the third sort of the stuff that Verhoeven sneaks in. And I much prefer that to like I would say Christopher Nolan's um, less Inception, but like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. They feel like dumb smart movies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is they have very serious tones and they they look and they feel like Heat, but it's like sure. oh, this is like the dumbest possible version of Heat. <laughs> that could exist like this is the this is the like joker like for a superhero movie and I, obviously you know there's y'all, so much you can say about Heath Ledger's performance and everything there's a lot of about Dark Knight and everything but like but like there's so much about the moral quandaries in that movie which is like this is the dumbest possible exploration of those moral quandaries um and uh I'm obviously it, it's probably also a gradient it's not a binary of dumb smart movies and smart dumb movies but i much prefer the verhoeven take to the uh sort of the christopher nolan batman movie kind of a take mm-hmm. well a good example of that is the uh the romantic entanglement stuff in this movie which is a lot of the movie like a good portion of it is, is given over to just these these uh you know like oh i like him but he likes her but he likes her and all that stuff and it is just insipid and and yeah. petty and yet it it gives the film structure and it, it works. It's what they're focusing on instead of um, the fascist world that they live in and the fact that they're all going to be ripped apart uh, by <laughs> bugs in the next well, couple months. It actually ends up being saved because like, on, cause on the one hand, that kind of stuff, it just makes it feel more like a movie from the 40s that's a, that's oh, yeah, a the- World War II propaganda kind mm-hmm. of movie. Because it is, because that is the kind of like epic star-crossed lovers. They're torn apart by a war and all that. Like, that is the kind of story that Hollywood. That's the kind of story that Hollywood war movies used to tell a lot, and stuff like that. And on the other hand, just the fact that everyone, just the fact that all the villains in this movie are, I mean, the the novel, the novel was in part, and the movie does this too. The novel more so, but the movie it's about just about the dehumanization of the enemy, 
um, which is yeah. there, there's no attempt to make them anything other than just hideous fucking gross bugs. Um, and that's, and you know, and that's obviously says something about the way propaganda works and stuff like that. But the, the plus side of that is even though all these people have these love triangles, um, and, and, and they hate each other cause, because it looks like she's leaving him for her, you know, she, she's leaving him for him and, and, and she loves him, but he doesn't know if he, how he feels about her and all that. Like it actually ends up saving all of that because, um, unlike a lot of say similar movies that would be purely focused on romance without any war stuff, because they're all on the same side, there's no like harsh feelings. There's no like villains in any of it. Like the hotshot pilot who scoops away, uh, Denise Richards, he's not like, he's not really depicted as that much of an asshole. He's just a cocky pilot. You know, he's not a bad guy. He right. gets his, he gets his kind of heroic death at the end. <laughs> like, and that actually makes that, those parts even more palatable. Um, like they, they complement each other well. Um, and the fact that you know that you don't have to take any of it too seriously because the real joy of the movie is all the, the violence and the action scenes and the, and the satire and all that. Like that even makes that even more palatable. Like it's a really, perfect synthesis and it could have easily not been that like i it isn't a no-brainer like there's a reason there aren't more movies like starship troopers yeah, um, i like that this film has been nicknamed uh all quiet on the final frontier because you know in a way it it harkens back to those world war ii movies but it's subverting them that you know gung-ho uh you know approach to war and i like that he's you know, playing with the iconography of the time, um, and yet, you know, still able to make a you know incredible action movie. And I think it's just kind of a shame that more action directors, you know, your your, your Michael Bay's and stuff, don't try to aspire for something more. I think that's just again, if you looked at what what is what would what would Michael Bay's uh, Turkish delight look like. <laughs> It would probably look like pain. it would probably look like pain and gain, you know, <laughs> like like I mean, it, again, it just all comes back to what is the what is the driving force of Paul Verhoeven as an artist, and how is he going to put that inside of whatever project he's on, hmm. whether it's Starship Troopers, whether it's RoboCop, whether it's Basic Instinct, whether it's Hollow Man, um, and I don't think that Michael Bay has that in him. Like it's it's not something that you can just sort of choose to sprinkle in. It's just not what he is interested in. I think what Michael Bay is interested in is the special effects and the fight scenes yeah. and stuff. Like, uh, like Transformer, like one of those movies, like the one of those Transformers movies. And I only saw the first one, but like, like I heard that this, you know, from what I heard, like the second one was just almost incoherent um, because it was so just so much CGI and so and the story was so bad and it was and the fight scenes were so quickly edited and hard to follow and like that to me that's probably michael bay's id like that's actually what's driving Mm -hmm. him you know and he didn't have other he didn't have a good story to sort of cut the michael bayness with he didn't have you know this that or the other to cut the michael bayness with and so you get something that's just dreadful whereas you know paul verhoeven like what's driving him is a little more interesting well if you can externalize your id to tell a good story (laughs) (laughs) you know i mean they I think that's what a good filmmaker can do, too, is just, you know, okay, I have all these uh, themes and ideas and, you know, things that interest me. How do I, you know, structure that into a good, compelling story? And I think Verhoeven has examples of it going wrong and examples of it going right. 
I mean, I, I, I think I, I honestly wonder if Verhoeven understands because Verhoeven claim like uh, like you like you mentioned earlier, Jim. Like Verhoeven claims, oh, I'm just reflecting the sexuality and violence in mm-hmm. our in our in our world. Like that's just how it works, you know. But like you watch RoboCop and his arm gets blown off with a shotgun. Like yeah. that's, it's clearly the most bullshit thing to say. Like no, you love this. Like you're you're making things way more violent than they would normally be. Like people don't get shot with a handgun and they have. Like a six-inch bullet hole explode out of their chest. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. I, I don't know if that's just something he likes to say to sort of to sort of silence critics, or if that's something he actually believes or what. And I don't know if it really matters because, regardless, uh, Total Recall is a fucking fun movie, and so is RoboCop, and so is Starship Troopers. Absolutely, I'm uh, kind of at a loss to even understand that quote from him because his whole thing is reveling in that. In 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 sex and violence essentially and, and all his movies are either you can pretty much codify as this is a sex movie or this is a violence movie and or it's a both um oh i would what was the quote exactly i'm sorry um you know what i have his imdb up right now um people seem to have the strange idea that films can influence people to be violent but in my sincere well okay this is a little different my sincere sincere opinion film only reflects the violence of society that's that's saying mm-hmm. something different but he has also claimed that like the reason his movies are so sexual is because that's what life is like, and that's and the reason his movies are so violent is because life is violent. Um, but I, I yeah I like it's clear that he just revels in it, but that doesn't <laughs> yeah, and sometimes it yeah. works better than others. I mean, some like my main problem with Hollow Man is that Kevin Bacon in that movie is as much of an asshole as. Um, you know, as Rutger Hauer is in Turkish Delight, um, but but it's in the context of a sci-fi sort of ex- film, and it and it makes that film feel really horrible. Um, that, that's a very rapey movie. Yeah. That's a really gross. Like, yeah. like I mean, and obviously, it's it does not credit the Invisible Man, and the and the actual plot of the of the film is different, but it is just a take on the invisible man. And mm-hmm. in the, in the invisible man, it's about someone who the, because he becomes invisible, he can't reveal himself to anybody. So he becomes shuttered away. And because he becomes shuttered away, he becomes resentful. And because he has his power, he, because he starts fucking with people and then he goes power mad. And then he slowly escalates to killing people. And then he kills masses of people. There's the great scene in invisible man where he derails an entire train, um, oh yeah! Like that movie. That movie is super wicked, but it gets there logically. Whereas in Hollow Man, Kevin Bacon is uh, invisible like maybe six hours before he starts sexually assaulting people. <laughs> I feel like that was the entire idea behind the movie was just like uh, you know what? If you, somebody was invisible, I bet they'd try to rape someone. You know, just really creepy. Yeah. yeah. Like I think that was the entire pitch for it. Like uh, that, and then. There'll be a, a gorilla disappearing. Uh, oh, yeah, th- no, there'll be a lot of sweet special effects. <laughs> I bet those are really bad. H, I didn't watch that one again, but I they uh, they have not aged bad at the time. They have not aged that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, certain ones have. When like his when he's first going invisible and skin's disappearing, that looks real bad. But, but sort of the uh, the uh, him like walking through sprays of water or him underwater and stuff. That stuff works. That still works pretty well. Um, reasonably well for a movie that's thirteen, you know, fourteen years old. But um, I, I think we can have that one thinking like I, I won't 
think this is a better movie later. I won't reevaluate no. this like I did RoboCop and see hidden depths in it. This is just no. a it's just a shitty. Invisible. It's really dreadful, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I think we can sort of um, talk about a couple other f- his films and almost back to back in a way because uh, um, I didn't rewatch Basic Instinct, but I did see The Fourth Man, and I really loved it. Actually, it's really creepy. It's one of those psychosexual thrillers that is really infused with a lot of dread. And crazy, threatening dream sequences that uh, wouldn't be out of place in a De Palma movie. And yet, I, th- I think it kind of works on a as an art film, uh, commenting on uh, religious uh, imagery and <laughs> like how prevalent it is and uh, guilt in terms of one's sexuality. And uh, I think it, it's just a much better version of the kind of sex thrillers that were overabundant in the late 80s and early 90s, and it has Verhoeven's uh, tendency to, you know, go for broke again. Uh, but I think it serves the, the story incredibly well. I really liked it a lot. And De Palma is definitely my touchstone as well when I saw Fourth Man. Yeah. Um, as far But it definitely made me, like, I definitely like Fourth Man more than most De Palma movies because I think Fourth Man is a lot more restrained, a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm thematically a lot better script a lot less arch um i mean and obviously we've we've talked about de palma a fair amount on this on this podcast no, not at all people, uh, people people uh you know people love de palma and that's that's fine i'm glad they do but uh and so i know not everyone will agree with me but i definitely think uh the re- the ways that fourth man works the effective scenes aren't just that it's sort of crazy and it is a crazy oh, yeah. kind of over the top movie at one point you know, like it opens with uh, you know footage of a spider web and a spider eating all these insects, and then when he goes to um, this woman's house, uh, her giant mansion, she has a salon. Um, so it has, and this is something that De Palma also covers in some of his um, some of his thrillers, which is sort of the psychosexual element and how it plays with gender, um, and and it plays with gender, but it does so in a much more, I feel, mature way. Uh, which is interesting in which the main character is bisexual and that is not um, – that's not like, oh, it's an indicator that he's fucked up. It's just he is bisexual and right. um, and the and the you know and the woman he's attracted to is uh, – you know, she's, uh, she's kind of androgynous and that isn't – Yeah. Like it doesn't treat uh, the, the, that kind of sexuality as um, just more exploitative elements. It, it, it actually makes – it actually explores them and makes it more psychologically interesting as I opposed like the, to just the sex scene that they have. It might, it might have been the first time they were together. Yeah. That sort of subverts that. And where he's sort of covering her chest yeah. and mm-hmm. when he pulls the rest of the side, she, it looks like she, you know, she has a boy's chest or whatever right. that. And it was, and there was the, and it was, and it's like, cause I mean, you like, you look at dress to kill. That's just like one of the most blatantly <laughs> offensive movies ever. Cause it's just another, you know, trans, sort of person, you know, who's a serial mm-hmm. killer or whatever. And that's, you know, it makes the movie kind of silly, but it also it's just very immature. Um, whereas Fourth Man feels a little more interesting and mature and rich uh, psychologically. Um, yeah. It, it has, like, you know, him having visions of castration and crucifixes everywhere. Yeah. Um, but, you know, by the way he was acting at the end, I was thinking he became schizophrenic. 
you know? And, I mean, obviously it could be triggered by all the shit he's going through and his kind of, uh, um, like, denial, maybe. But it's it's really interesting. I love the way this movie kind of ends, where it leaves you hanging a little bit. Verhoeven, well, Verhoeven, what's interesting you say schizophrenic, because I, I, there's a quote by Verhoeven where he says he intends Fourth Man to be his movie about uh, Christianity. Hmm. Um, and the way and the way he phrases it is that he views uh, Christianity as sort of a mass schizophrenia <laughs> that that like a huge percentage of the population of the world has. Um, and he's and how and that's how kind of he views religion in general. Um, uh, you know, he uh, wants to make a movie about Jesus. Yeah, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, right? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, that would be that. <laughs> A Paul Verhoeven movie about the life of Jesus uh, would be fantastic. At the very least, because he, at the very least, because he'd probably fuck someone up really bad when he kicked the, uh, you know, when he kicked the uh, the marketers the, the market out of the temple. <laughs> There's going to probably be a scene he flips over a table and like a chair breaks and splinter goes into someone's eye. Um, <laughs> it'd be it'd be fantastic. Like just a really badass sort of Jesus kicking the sellers out of the temple. Um, and Fourth Man, I watched immediately after Basic Instinct um, on recommendation from Gabe, uh, Gabe Powers, our friend Gabe Powers. Thank you, Gabe. Yeah, Basic Instinct is... Oh, it is Joe Esterhaz's script, and mm-hmm. it, is, it is dreadful. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I don't remember too much about it. I saw it when I was probably too young. And didn't I mean, even like it then. I can... I, there, there is good work in it. I, th- I think Sharon Stone is fine. I think um, Jan de Bont, the photographer, does a really good job uh, on Basic Instinct. I think it's a really good-looking movie. I really like Jerry Goldsmith's very old-timey, kind of noirish soundtrack. Mm-hmm. That's that, very that does stand out. It's a really good soundtrack. Um, but it is just the dumbest. It, it almost It almost, and I only say almost because it is so dumb and non-committal, that it doesn't really work in the end in this respect, but like it almost feels like a a, a parody of sort of uh, mass like masculine fears, um, <laughs> like just sort of all masculine. Like like in this like the, what this movie puts across is like, like the most dangerous thing a woman can be is uh, magna cum laude from Berkeley. <laughs> like mm. like they talk about the fact that she has a psychology degree as if she's a hypnotist. Or something like you don't understand how dangerous she is. She has a psychology degree from Berkeley. She was magna cum laude. Like magna cum laude is not even top of the class. I don't think there's one of like summa cum laude is top of the class. <laughs> <laughs> like, but like it's and it, and it is just and it's another Michael Douglas movie and that and all those movies always baffle me because I don't understand why I'm supposed to root for him. Uh, I felt that way about Black Rain. I feel that way about this movie. Like he's always just this weird asshole who is just <laughs> uh, who people are like, "Hey, you're messed up," and he goes, "Fuck you! I don't need no fucking therapist. I ain't crazy, and I don't want to fuck my mother." And like that's how he like boils down all like all psychiatrists are just like Freuds, like trying. Oh, you want to fuck your mother? Like yeah. like that? Like it's that weird old old school conservative kind of character mm-hmm. and and all of those movies like all of those thrillers he's in are all just about women out that are out to doom men and and which is you, i don't know that you are supposed to root for him in basic instinct but, i mean i'm certainly rooting for him to get 
ice pick stabbed. He's he's a dick in it. He's a but he. I mean, he is the point of identification. He's the main character. It's and he's not dark in an interesting way either. He's not like a. I, I think you. I think you're supposed to like him because he is uh, old fashioned dude. Um, and yeah. I think it, I think it's I think it's just one of those movies. It's just, it's just sort of pandering to that. It's just sort of a response. A reaction to like, oh, the '90s political correctness, buh. Like, <laughs> well, uh, that, that's disclosure. That's a horrible film. Oh, yeah, God. That's, that's right. <laughs> the, this disclosure is the men men's rights activist. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of all movies in which in which is like, yeah, rape is horrible, but guess what? Men could never report it. And it's like I'm pretty sure that's not the most important thing about rape culture. But <laughs> it's like, I remember you, uh, you know, what, what you said about Fourth Man, and you know how that character. You know, is bisexual and it's not like uh, emphasized to the degree like, oh my god, he he must be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but in Basic Instinct, like, yeah, they'd sort of view her that way, like, oh my god, she's bisexual. She's she must be a sociopath. She's yeah. promiscuous. She likes to fuck. She's dangerous. Like, yeah, and uh, and that's why I mean that's part of why I love Falling Down so much is it's a subversion of all of those Michael Douglas characters. Yeah, yeah. Where, I, I do think in Basic Instinct you're supposed to root for him to get his comeuppance a little bit. Yeah, I think that you are intended to to be happy when that happens at the end. Or I guess it doesn't really happen. Whatever happens at the end, that is a really <laughs> weird ending. <laughs> the Verhoeven quote about that I remember this to this day was was great. Where people were asking him to clarify what happens at the end of the movie, and he's like, "Well, uh, I, I guess she kills him, and he goes to hell." <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> oh man. That's uh, awesome. And he goes I, I definitely remember he said, I guess. I guess she kills him and he goes to hell. That's really good. Uh so yeah, I really just I really hate basic instinct. Uh but as much as I like especially Watching it back to back with Fourth Man just made me realize, like, oh wow, no, there's a very good version of this movie in Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, that was nice to discover. It is a rock dumb script, Basic Instinct. It mm-hmm. is. Yeah, Basic Instinct is one of those examples where, like, the story's like he wrote it in eleven days, and you're like, yeah, <laughs> that that makes about sense. <laughs> that sounds about right. Like, whenever I hear that, like, Breakfast Club was written in three days, I'm like, yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> And the same with uh, Basic Instinct. Yeah, I think that movie is just more well known for Sharon Stone's vagina, pretty much. It's well, the movie where Newman sees Sharon Stone's vagina. <laughs> but that's only because so few Americans realize that there's an even better scene in which you get to see Rutger Howard's taint. Mm-hmm. Like I think if Americans just knew that they could, that the opportunity was available to them to see Rutger Howard's taint. Sharon Stone's vagina would not be so exciting. Or you could see the the bad guy from The Fugitive, and you could see his penis in The Fourth Man. Well, there you go. Yeah. Or you can see Kevin Bacon's CGI penis in Hollow Man. <sighs> Good now, stuff. I'll just, I'll just stick to Wild Things if I want to see Kevin Bacon's penis. Oh, man. Wild Things is a great sexual... Uh, oh, yeah. A lot of thriller. Kind of... Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> 
it definitely has a lack of respect for the genre that I identify with Verhoeven. It definitely, like, the chief joys of Wild Things is, hey, this is all bullshit. Come on. <laughs> like, the fact that there are, like, five plot twists that happen during the credits is, like, the greatest thing about uh, Wild Things for me. And I'm sure I mentioned that a lot on this podcast, but it's still, it's just, it makes me love Wild Things all the more. Um, the lack of respect that McTiernan has for that material. Is that McTiernan? Yeah. Or is that- no. McNaughton. Uh, yeah, McNaughton. Yeah. Well, guys, I think we're ready to wrap things up here, eh? Sure. What are your top three Verhoeven movies? Jim, you go first. Oh, God. Um, God, I'm so tempted to tie RoboCop in Total Recall just to be a dick. But I won't. Um... Number one is RoboCop, number two is Total Recall, and number three is Starship Troopers. Uh, John? I got Starship Troopers number one. I think it's phenomenal. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, it's it's like, as far as war satire goes, it's Dr. Strangelove, and then it's Starship Troopers, I think. Uh, number two is uh, it's RoboCop, and uh, I guess number three is Total Recall. Uh, I think that's his thing. Sci-fi yeah. action movies. Yeah, completely agree. It is. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Jim, you know, I have a long-standing habit on the show to. Uh, I have a long-standing opinion that you know I like when directors play to their strengths, um, but at the same time, I think I might have to say while my number one film is RoboCop, I think my number two is The Fourth Man, um, and my number three would be Starship Troopers. I I don't. I think I agree that. Verhoeven's thing is sci-fi action movies and I think he's fucking phenomenal at it but I think there's so much that's really interesting about The Fourth Man um, that I really enjoy even though I think it had a kind of an anticlimactic ending um, yeah I, again I like the ambivalence of it or you know the ambiguity or just kind of yeah it was anticlimactic but in a way that I thought was like hmm well I guess he's either going to be in a coma or go through go, go to a psychiatric hospital and that's it but hey that's fine. I really liked it too. It'd be my it would be my number four. All right. Well, uh, John, thank you so much. It was great talking to you finally. And uh, yeah, thanks. Absolutely, um, thank you. I don't think you don't you don't have anything to plug right. You don't write for any websites or anything. No, I don't write for any websites. No. So uh, I guess uh, Google search "Tales from the Crypt" exhumed uh, <laughs> to find yep. some old stuff me and John wrote. Uh, that 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 that'll be the plug. So that's uh, that's I, I went back. I read some of them. They're fun. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I tried to watch that show again, and it, there's a reason that we stopped. It just it yeah. got hard to watch. It really, it really the the joy left. Yeah. Um, but uh, now for 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 a solid while, that was a really fun project, and I, I appreciate you coming on board with me for that one. Oh yeah, of course. Um, have me on here. Absolutely, uh, Jim. Um, you have anything to plug? I think I'm just going to give the whole usual check us out at directorsclubpodcast.com. And I'm at Instant Gym, both on Twitter and Letterboxd. All right. And I'm at Patrick Rapol. And my uh, viewing journal is Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot wordpress.com. I have actually kept with my New Year's resolution to write about every movie I've seen of the year um, so far. I still have I have five movies to write about now, um, 
four Verhoeven and one uh, experimental short film I watched. But I've written about a fair amount of stuff recently. I've been putting up a lot of stuff. So uh, that's finally active again, which is nice. Terrific. And, uh, of course, you can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com. And an email over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you guys. Um, we, got a, uh, we got a fun voicemail. Hey, Jim. Hmm. Can we put that voicemail that we got at the end? Which one? Oh, the... <laughs> I heard that. You didn't hear the voicemail we got with all the sound effects? Oh, I think we did. Uh, yeah, I did. I yeah. remember that. Mm-hmm. We, we, someone left us a voicemail. Our voicemail uh, number, by the way, is shit. It's uh, not shit. It is 224-366-9528. Thank you. I was trying to buy time as I pulled up the site, but you got it, Jim. Thank you. Uh, um, so leave us a voicemail as well. Maybe you'll hear it at the end of the episode. That would be nice. Yeah. Guess what? What? In two weeks, we're going to be talking about Otto Preminger. Oh, man. I'm so excited. I know nothing about Otto Preminger. Well, I know somebody who knows a lot. Yeah? Who's that? Nat Almeral. Sweet. He was on the David Lynch episode. He's a great guy. He will actually probably be popping by your apartment. Possibly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't <laughs> Depending know if, I'm gonna, on if you're moving or not. I'm not going to let that guy in my apartment. Oh, he's a sweetheart. Yeah, but I saw what he did to your bathrooms, and it's just, you know what? I, uh, I'm a renter. I don't own. I can't afford it. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think we're talking Laura and Skidoo. Skidoo's going to be a weird one. I was very surprised that that was one of the films chosen. Is that the, well, the Groucho one? Is that what that? That is the one that Groucho dropped acid <laughs> to make, yeah. Um, yeah, but we're definitely going to touch upon, like, Bunny Lake is missing and Anatomy of a Murder as well. Mm-hmm. So, it's going to be great. He could be another director that potentially could have a part two in the future. A lot of those all old Hollywood directors, Yeah, they made so many films um, that you can you can really do that more readily for mm-hmm. well thanks guys so much for listening we'll see you in two weeks for the Otto Preminger episode goodbye here we are in the water it's a moment you've all been waiting for you paid twenty dollars to see us fuck in the water so here we go oh this is cold but it feels so good on my genitals nothing gets me hotter Fucking in the water Shakes me like a scary sea monster It's so sexy when you do that thing with your hands Everybody knows uh, Fucking in the water is way better than fucking on land So stick it in, yeah. let's begin Paul Verhoeven puts some more vulnerable moments at the end of uh, Turkish Delight. Yeah, segue. Let's do it. Okay. So Paul Verhoeven, he, he mostly did stuff for film. He had made some short uh, – uh, All right. <laughs> but Turkish Delight was definitely oh, – God damn it. Hold on just a moment, okay? That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> please, make, please make a note. I'm, I'm Don't actually... even me going, God damn it, and walking away. <laughs> <laughs> or put it – no, put that at the end of the show. Oh, of course.